Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 31st of May 2020 and I hope you're all just hanging on and hanging in, but not hanging yourselves hopefully during all this chaos caused by the reaction to a virus and as time goes on of course um, (laughs) we're watching more pandemonium uh, being created as part of this ongoing revolution that we're living through the revolution was written about at the United Nations it was written about from the Rockefeller Foundation and it's been written about two from the Club of Rome and all the and the World Economic Forum constantly telling us and telling us that we'd have to go into sustainability for a new world order. And by the way, the United Nations has come out with uh, an article called the United Nations New World Order for those that like to joke about it. But they say it themselves. They always say it themselves from the horses' mouths. Just like George Bush Sr. and Jr. both said the same thing. But uh, everyone else is taught to just laugh at anybody, anybody mentioning it. Isn't it strange how this idea of conspiracy theory works on those of low intellect? They always jump at it. Oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Even though you can, you can give them the exact same quotes from, and even the videos, in fact, from those who say it and bring it out at the very top. And presidents, for instance. But it doesn't matter. As I say, facts don't matter in the system we're going through right now. But we're living through it. And they keep telling us, look, you, you won't listen to us. You've got so many minutes to midnight to, to stop the world from just going into self-destruct. With too many people, too many of you, actually. See, all, all of you, you know, the peasant class. And everybody below, a baron and a sir and so on. It was basically a peasant. And that's most folk, even the folk who think they're middle class, because they can go down just as quickly, believe you me, if they're not necessary. And again, you've you got to look into the past to get to the present and into the future. And George Orwell, of course, summed that whole thing up in 1984, because they controlled the past. And if you control the past, you can control the, the future and the present, in fact. In the present, you can rewrite the past if you want to as well, which they do all the time. We're living through this all the all. In fact, there's never been a time, like right now, with this COVID lockdown and the complete censoring across the whole internet and social media by the new, uh, the new information czars, unelected czars, and a totalitarian system, naturally, it really, really is. But you can watch articles disappearing in real time when you're looking them up, if you can even get to them, because they shadow ban and, and you, you, any time out and all that, try to get to, to different articles that have been there for years. And they just disappear eventually, rather quickly, in real time, as they go all out with this war on, on free speech and free thought and free exchange of ideas. You can only get their ideas that are authorized at the top from the, from the czars and their teams, but not from anybody else, uh, or even from yourself. I've looked up stuff I've said in the past myself. I can't find it either, but uh, but there you go. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Uh, the times we're living in, it doesn't surprise me because I've been waiting for it for, for a long, long, long time. Because I did study, uh, and I really did. I, I didn't, uh, not like the, the person who copies my bio. <laughs> I really did study from a very early age, and went to the library and, and found the old books and so on. Excellent libraries they had in Britain and Scotland. 
uh, and especially in the old reference, the old reference libraries. Even in school, you could dig up some, some because we didn't chuck the books out then. They didn't have the, what they call the, the the weeding, the social librarian weeding that they have today, where they weed out books that are now politically incorrect. You had different versions of history that were more, more in tune with what really happened at the time when I was in school. And right down to money, it was fascinating when you're about seven years old or six. And you, you start thumbing through a, 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 a school textbook meant for young children, very young, about money and, and armies and empires. Because yeah, empires just don't come out of nowhere. It's going to have structure and management and uh, an organization to manage it all, right down to quartermasters and so on that dealt with supplies for the armies and so on. And where did they get the money from? Well, they told you in the book, and it went right back into ancient Rome and before, and it was fascinating to see the peoples who went along with the armies and dished out the food and kept accounts, and they went back to the emperors in Rome and so on, or the Senate, to get their, their, all the money paid back to them. Uh, nothing's changed. It's just astonishing. Life is really rather simple. Because it all comes down to economics, eh? and and we're, we're, we've been living in an economical system, like a monetary economic system, for an awful, awful long time. Uh, so far removed from a from any natural little tribal collectivist society, the collectivist society they're trying to bring us in today is a global society, but it's a socialist type, run by really those who've who've who are the successors of Marxism. Uh, maybe the third or fourth generation of Marxists, and uh, they call themselves progressives now, if you haven't figured it out. And they, they use all of the techniques that Marx talked about using, and then they were refined again by Trotsky. And then that with the revolutionaries in America too, uh, like the Weather Underground, and so that further restructured how to have revolutions and fragmented uh, revolutions within society of different groups all, all combating each other to get to a particular goal and how you create it and use it. All that kind of stuff's going on right now to, to an amazing degree across the planet. And, and folk never figure out who's behind it. They've got little clues where you see certain peoples cropping up all over the place, just like now we do when you look at the CDC. Uh, and you can see Fauci at the CDC. You can see Fauci, too, at the, the, the Institute, of course, for, for Infectious Diseases and Allergies and so on. And we see Fauci again dealing with the WHO, the, the WHO, and, and and so on. It's the same names cropping up all over the place. And, and again, it's Fauci who 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 decides what medications you're going to get, and he he advocates who they're going to be. And there's definitely definitely um what you would call it um is not impartial. He's not impartial enough to be advising what we should have since he's too closely affiliated with these companies, these corporations. Uh, that are going to churn out the medications and the vaccines and so on. I mean, at one time we used to call these folk gangs. It's much better and pleasant think, term to use. It's very short, you know, gang, uh, quite easy to understand. And in the gang you'll have the leaders of one, one part of the gang, but specialised uh, lieutenants 
that would deal with other facets, like, for instance, vaccinations and so on, and big pharma companies. And then other ones that would deal with the government. We call them fascism, really, when it's fascism running government. It's really making sure that governments and agencies work together with the government. Uh, <laughs> technically, to make everything to work together, to make it work. But in reality, it's to, it's to, it's to force it upon the public. That's what fascism really is. When, when governments are in bed with big private corporations and the money boys at the top that, that dish out imaginary money. It's not even just paper or plastic anymore. It's, it's just blips on the screen. Uh, a good magic act, a really good magic act. But we're living through amazing times through magic, isn't it? Because most folk haven't a clue what's real anymore, what isn't real anymore. Let's get back to revolution, right? And the, and the new world order of the United Nations and sustainability. And again, the World, the world Economic Forum. All these big groups all attend the World Economic Forum. All the corporations, all the top members of the WHO, the CDC, the Club of Rome, and every other group out there that runs their lives, and Rockefeller Foundation and so on, they all go to this WEF, you see. And they decide, with the futurists, how they're going to run the next part of their agenda. Not our agenda, because we don't have one. We to follow their agenda. It's forced upon us. And it's announced to the public, just like it comes down from heaven. Even the idea of the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, you always, in Davis, you always think of it in the mountains, you see. You get a picture in your mind of the mountains and... Just like in ancient times in Sumer and so on, and they they put they put food up into the caves and the, and the hills and that, because that's where the gods lived, you see, and and they put the food up there and asked for the blessings, and it was always upon high, something above you, you see, and but today you, you imagine it too, like the Ultima Thule, uh, of the, the the high high Nordic mountains you see in Switzerland and and way up yonder they all meet on the top of the world, eh? the World Economic Forum. And the overlords, none of them are elected, of course, because, um, because they've conned the public that somehow they're a natural appendage to government. You know, they, they graft themselves on. But they go there and they decide your future. I, I, I'm always astounded how folk can say, we're democratic, we're progressive. Well, progressing towards what? Whose progression are you progressing towards? Because you certainly are not told. Most folk aren't told about it. The leaders of all the radical groups are well paid and funded. I mean, they get get salaries. There's like CEOs of corporations, a lot of leaders of these radical groups, you know. If you don't know that, they get lifelong pensions and everything. Incredibly well organized. And if you think they're not part of the Mossad, the CIA, MI6, you better think again because this strange organization called the CIA has been running the world since, since the end of World War II, really. And overthrowing countries and nations and, and plundering countries too for the rich men in their own countries. This is how empires really work, you see. But yeah, back to Davos, and you're thinking about them, and they're way up there having their meeting, 
and they're having big, massive, it's, it's, it's incre- never mind the money that gets them there, and the money, it's, it's not meant for the average Joe, it, it costs a fortune to get a hotel for the night, or a, a room, or even a little slum for the night, I suppose, you maybe bribe the person to get a St. Bernard out the kennel, and then get in there for the night, but no, it's, it's for the rich, you see, and they don't want the peasants around there, and... Um, but they, they, they decide what they're going to do in agreements. And they dra- And again, by the way, most of these big corporations have got their hands out to governments for handouts and public-private partnership deals, energy commissions, all these kind of things. And, and so here we are. The, the, the people who want to pay for it all are the general public of the planet. We're not allowed to get... We can't get there, you see, and get a ticket to get in or in. But, uh, but these people at the top that, that live off of us like parasites at the top, with their big think tanks and their big uh, big bureaucracies, just like civil servants that for each company, that's what they have, decide how we're going to live. And of course, they'd, they'd always make sure that we're going to be dependent on what they actually have and what they're, they, they preside over, you see, whatever, like energy supplies and all that kind of stuff. And we're supposed to all follow along, and most folk do. They never think about it at all. They think it's somehow natural, you know. I mean, if you if you if you suddenly notice a third arm growing out your chest, would you think that was natural? Well, how come these 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 organisations just appear, you know, and and then and then you hear it repeat on the news, and you'll see important people there, and you think somehow it's quite natural that that this this new appendage to all is making decisions that they were all, all going to have to live by or die by, you see. And and strangely enough, just like Bill Gates, eh, and just like the the lucky gene club, I like to call it because that's what they used to call themselves, the nickname for them, when they meet together, the eugenicists, the richest people, and all that, and the influencers of society. Oprah was a member of it too. And the influence society, you see, uh, they're the persuaders, you see. But, but, but here they are, you know, the, the same people are the WEF, and they, they have quite, they're quite open about their agenda, too many people. Uh, and so what, what, what we've got to do, and the, and the UN repeats the exact same stuff because it's one clique with a lot of faces, folks, like the, like the, the different departments, United Nations. It's the same. It's the same group, really, with different faces. You know, forget Janus. You see, Janus is is the old god idea, and much more than just that. Of the one who looks forward and rules in front of them and sees and rules, but also behind them, he's got another face looking backwards as well. If you can imagine just a circle of them, <laughs> with all different kinds of names, huh? looking outwards and inwards. And you've got the WEF and the Club of Rome and you've got all the different organizations and all the big foundations uh, there. And you have also the big top corporations all around it as well. The education committees and the UNICEF and blah, 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 blah. This all, it's just a club with specialized branches, that's all. But they all meet and they're all on board with the same. Too many people, too many of you. And they would like to bring down the population of the planet to fit their goals of, of a wonderful future for themselves and their own progeny, you see. Their, proge- their progeny is, is worth it because they have better genes than you. And they know that. If you look into the eugenic societies 
and how they formulated the better types and inferior types. And the better types, you can't just join their club. They were quite brazen about what took to join their club. You had to prove that, that you uh, and your mother and your father had, had at least seven generations before you of good breeding, you see, who'd always interbred with the better families, you know, and and had the, the proper... Um, and they kept on, 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 on the straight and narrow. They didn't go into drugs or booze or whatever. Uh, they, they, they kept an even keel in society. And they had their children, and they, they, would, they would run the militaries, they would run uh, the armaments companies, they would run the big corporations, all that kind of stuff. But they'd always marry within their own groups. And they were very, very, they were sticklers about it, keeping, keeping tabs on genealogies in the families to see if there were any bad genes or, well, you know, seven generations ago, Uncle So-and-so was a, great-great-uncle So-and-so was a bit of a lush, and things like that, you see. And they literally talked about that. They actually talked about that in their little meetings and their little tittle-tattle behind each other's backs, because there's always a bit of a rivalry amongst them at the top, you see. But they, 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 they all knew each other's families' histories. Astonishing. That's how the British upper class were. And the British upper class often had kind of immigrated into the country and, and, and married very, very, very broken down lords and so on who lost their money through gambling because and, and, they were not very really to run anything. But nothing's really changed. You see, that's how the eugenic societies were formed. And I've mentioned it before with the histories of Charles Darwin. And uh, he was one of many, uh, his family was one of many families that were already practicing, practicing specially selective breeding uh, within certain families that they claimed or they they really thought through through their constant checking of genealogy that they had a better chance of of a, a more superior offspring than the general population that married it because they liked the shape of someone, some girl's ankle, you know, back in those days. And so they'd arrange their marriages. Yeah. There's many ways to look at it because psychopaths can also marry psychopaths or the offspring of psychopaths. And, and it's true, they've done studies on that too and found out that going way back, you could find... The, the really the nobilities came out of warrior classes that were really families that started to slaughter families round about them. You had a big family, you see, and you start slaughtering, you take them over, and all the peasants underneath them then were yours. And you got a bigger uh, base to draw an army from, and you'd build it up and build it up. But the leaders, you didn't, you'd, then you would, you would marry uh, some other psychopath's daughter, you see another warlord's daughter from either your own country or a different country, and amalgamate, you see, that's how you, the, the, the accumulated wealth and so on. It's, it's quite an old, old history, but that's how it used to be for many, many centuries. And we saw it too, going way back into the pharaohs, where, where they often married their sisters, for instance, to keep everything, you had the proper blood, right? So you didn't want to marry inferior blood, and so you call yourself a god, and you'd marry your sister, the goddess, and have children, little little goddesses and god, gods and stuff. Maybe it's godlings, eh, for little ones. But anyway, it's interesting to, to see how it's always been much the same. 
And even when they, they tried to put a scientific spin on it, like they did with the Darwins, and the Darwins just married into the for generations into the Wedgwood family. Uh, they're well known for their ceramics and pottery and so on. But uh, they kept marrying, and so much so that I think it was when Charles's uh, wife died, he then married uh, his wife's mother or, or sister or something. But they, they kept all they did was marry uh, into into the same families over and over and over. And of course, then then you end up with with unfortunate traits as well that are very predictable. Because all of the Huxleys, too, who were also related to the Darwins later on, uh, you'd find they'd all have terrible headaches and things like that, or and depressions. Even Julian Huxley used to have depressions, came on them. But uh, they, they got it all, too, from Darwin's bulldog. And, of course, that was, their, that was um, uh, Thomas Huxley, it was. He was called. Uh, he was called Darwin's bulldog. He took over when Darwin died, and pushed the whole idea of eugenics and superior breeding, and giving it a scientific slap instead of the usual blue blood uh, stuff. You know, to make it to make it more um, scientific. If things are, if you quote things in science or, or the terminology of science, it seems more more real and more more um, genuine. Put it that way. Credible, uh, so that's what they use for it. So, right down to the day, you find the same things going on. The same people, right? You, the same people with the same agendas that they had centuries ago, uh, who now believe it's time to have their great leap forward and get rid of all the, the peasant stock that they don't need anymore. Uh, so much so, they, they say they could even recreate a peasant stock genetically if they, need, if they really had to. It isn't just, <laughs> you've heard about the arcs that they have, right? And back in the 90s, gave talks on this, about the arcs that, that they have. They have one in the States in Louisiana, and another couple inside the States, other ones across the world. But these scientists, and they, they have scientists uh, in charge of them, lifelong, these arcs. And it isn't just seed for plants that they have. They, they actually have the semen and the ovum of different animals, all animals and humans, by the way, and cold storage. And, and every so often they take them out of cold storage and will bring and, and actually fertilize them and then insert them into other mammals. They have all this documentation that's fascinating. And they can actually bring the, whatever mammal is to term. By using a, a different kind of animal as a mother to bring it to term, and they've been awfully successful. And years ago, I, I put up links on the documentaries that were put out about them by themselves, because they did that back then. And they said it was for a great catastrophe, like an end of life extinction experience that could happen. And they gave all the different scenarios, like a nuclear war or. Or again, a disease would wipe out most of humanity where the elite would live underground and blah, 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 and survive. But then they could come out and, and then repopulate the planet, including uh, a working-class stock that they could, they could do, basically create there from sperm and ovum uh, that, were, that was frozen. Uh, just astonishing uh, which, what they've done to make sure that they can survive for themselves, you see. It, wouldn't, it doesn't matter if, if most of the people just perish. In fact, they'd be quite happy in this day and age if most folk perished. And they're rather, they're, they're rather outspoken these days about that. But now it's, it's always put under sustainability. It's for the good of the planet, you know. 
and it's so good for the animals. Just too many folk competing with animals, and, and yada yada yada. So it sounds again all scientific. It's all it's for, it's always for the betterment and the good of something. You see, whatever they do to you, hmm? it's always for the good, the, the greater good. And they never come out and says, "We just want to get rid of you for goodness' sake." Uh, so they couch it in, in nice, cozy uh, documentaries and things like that. Nice, wonderful. We're here to help you. And, the, and bring on uh, different um, uh, university graduates or professors that dedicate their life to helping. You just don't realize that. No, it wasn't for the money. It wasn't for the power and all the prestige. And, and it wasn't so that they get picked for survival for themselves when the rest of us go down, down, down the chip. No, no, no. These professors, they come out openly now saying it's time that the people around 65 just died and took euthanasia. The professor in Australia, they, they trot him out every few years, you know. They give these talks on television, apparently. I've only seen clips that folks sent me. But he, he gets all the publicity he wants because he's a spokesperson for those at the top. And they, they do their best to persuade you. It's, it's for the greater good, you know. That you, sh- you should collect that pension. Uh, and you, you've had a good life, you know. Uh, you've watched lots of television. They, they, give you, they give you lots of good TV programs to watch most of your life. That's what you did with it. And, and then you emulate what you saw on TV. And, uh, and if you didn't have any children, you were really good, 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 you see. But even if you were very good, 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 they still want you to just self-annihilate at the age of 65, leave the pension money, because the government then could use it for good scientific endeavors for the future of the planet and those that are chosen to live on it. So uh, this is how it really is, folks. I'm using a bit of a satire to put it across, but but the satire is is completely loaded with the truth. You're so used to being talked to like a child. And and you can present anything through a good documentary using psychologists and behavior. You can put something across in no time at all and have most of the folk having tears in their eyes and and at the end, they'll say, okay, okay, yeah, you're right, okay, we do sign on for elimination at 65. I'm not kidding you. It can be done. It can be done. You have no idea the power of the television. And George Ormel talked about it too, you know, that the, the TV could convince people of, of anything and to do anything or behave in any way that they wanted them to. It's been done. But the folk don't know. And so getting back to the third arm sticking out their chest, and what's that thing called the World Economic Forum? Well, again, you don't vote for it. It is created itself. The rich folk of the earth create it for themselves. And and you don't matter. You don't count. Because these are the ones who are going to make the changes in the world. Not you, you little peasant. And all you do is change the channel on your TV. But these folk literally decide what you're going to get in TV and what you're going to believe and not believe in and how you'll behave and what's good behavior and what's bad behavior hmm? and what, what they're going to teach the children. Yeah, Not to have any, ch- any children either, you see. Good, good, good. Yeah. But uh, you can, yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's so true. Uh, you're so well understood, as I've said so many times and studied more minutely than any animal or ant has been studied. 
and cons- and more. There's studies going on. All the, even now under the COVID thing, we look at the billions getting thrown at different endeavors of, of university psychological operations and so on, and studies and all kinds of things uh, to do with us during this pandemic. It's just astronomical. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Because you see, that's how you rule the world, is by understanding the peasantry. And and to to if you put a, if you get the peasants in a room and you walk the tiger into the they'll freak out right up naturally. That's a natural response, you see. But they find other ways of doing it that that won't elicit the same kind of fear. They could train you. They got and cuddle that 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 tiger. You see, if they wanted to do that, they could, yeah, sure they could do it. You've seen the people. I've done the articles years ago. There's a woman, and, and I think it was, was it Canada, was it Alaska, I can't remember. But she took her two children, she was a greenie, you know, and the greenie, greenie, hugged, hugged the trees. And, and Disney, Disneyland makes you love all the animals, you see. And her daughter, when they saw a bear, her daughter ran to, uh, uh, towards it. And the bear swiped her and killed her. And the son went to try to help the daughter, and he got hit as well. And then a, a, a few days later, they talked to the mum. And she says, I don't want the bear to be put down, you know. She says, it's not the bear's fault and so on. And the saddest thing was she couldn't see it was her fault. Because you don't, you don't let children go and run towards cuddle, and cuddle bears in the wild. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's, that's, that's just, they get that from TV. They really think it's a cuddly Disney world out there. These animals, have you seen bears fighting each other? Whoa. You won't want to be around that. They, they, each swipe could put, well, put, put it, 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 a whole slashes through a house in seconds. Just woof, 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 woof. They wouldn't even notice it, the bears. So you don't go and cuddle them, you know. They're wild animals. Leave them. Leave them as they are. And give them a good birth. They'll give you a good birth too in the wild. That's how you do it. But no, you can convince the people of anything, and and unfortunately, it really does work with the, with the people. They're almost ready to sacrifice them, the children and themselves to the to the nice bears. You know. You can understand. Don't look at any particular problem and or, or event in, in one direction, unidirectional. Look at it from different angles. Because there's many things you're, you're seeing at the same time there. How did that mother allow the children to do it? Why did the mother allow them to even go and run towards it? What was the mother thinking? What was her impression of what a wild bear's like? Where did she get that impression? Huh? Now, if you pushed a child towards a bear and it got mangled, you'd be up in a charge. But to train children to run and want to cuddle bears in the wild from television, nobody gets up in a charge for that, do they? That's the power of persuasion, again, through very, very expert um, videography, coupled with the soothing voice. You always have these soothing voices talking over uh, in, in the documentaries they churn out. Canada is quite amazing. For, for the women who, who get, do these documentaries You never see them generally But there's certain ones with a certain voice and accent they use 
And Canada is famous for using them for, for oh, 25, 30 years. And they the talk in a certain, it's not monotone, but it's lower than the average woman's voice. And they can talk at a very pace, talk very pace like that, hypnotic. And a little, little bit of the music at the back there to put you into the, into the alpha state. And, uh, and which is hypnotic, you see. And TV will do that for you, you go into alpha state. And, and, and then the voice is just hypnotically paced and mentioning the and you're getting sucked into it. And uh, with, it, with the music and the tempo of the music, which will vary according to the scene. And when they give you the nasty, nasty thing of, of, of a poor bear that's, that's lost his home, because someone's moved in that area or whatever, then uh, the music will change and dun 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 to this man, dun 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 dun, you see? And, and, and then they'll show you a, a clear cut uh, part of a forest from the 1950s, which they don't do anymore. But they always show the same thing to, when they want to train the radicals, you know, a, radi- a radical generation like the Antifa movement. That's what they brought up on in school, make sure they see that kind of, oh my God, oh my God. Mm. There you go. It, it really works wonders, doesn't it? It really does. You, you, you always create the society you want for the next 20 years. You start now for, for the ones you want in 20 years' time. There'll be young adults and uh, fully trained, fully indoctrinated. They'll have a common opinion for every, every topic. They'll have the same uniform opinion because they've been trained that way. There's never been a time in history when you have so many people at the age of 20 all saying the same things, believing in the same things, uh, it's never been done to this extent before. Before they've tried it for revolutions, they know it works. And you train them for, like, for the Bolshevik revolution. You, you make th- things as bad as possible with, with wars and famine and so on uh, to make it worse so the folk will revolt. And you train them that you're going to work for a better utopia. For the, for the future, and, and they jump on it. Young, the young always fall for the same things, you see. They never realize that once the revolution's over, those who really wanted to, the revolution to occur go after the leaders and, and annihilate them. That's standard for those. <laughs> it's a little, a little warning for those who are doing it right now. They don't realize this. But that always happens. And um, you find, too, that Bezmanov who was the ex-Soviet spy that came out in the 70s and 80s and talked about it and the cultural espionage. It was cultural espionage. It was successful. That's all you had to do was destroy the culture. The Frankfurt School knew that too. But, he, he, but Bezmanov said that the leaders that, that, that agitate and do the agitprops and so on, and they do the organization for the riots and all that. They really think that it's going to be a, a wonderful system. But when they find out the conquerors don't give them the, the, the wonderful system, that there's a different agenda there, they start complaining, and so they get wiped out because they won't shut up. That always happens. But that's what we live in. It's a world of constant intrigue run by uh, powerful institutions, well-funded institutions, so well-funded, in fact, that most folk are completely misled as to who runs it all. That's, that's a beautiful trick of, say, the CIA. It has so many revolutionary forces across the world on the go, all age groups, too, that, that and always disguised under political reform parties or revolutionaries or whatever, 
that the folk never catch on to the true functions. Even the folk who participate and actually do the fighting never catch on. And that's why you have the, the, the old movies and even modern ones about the disillusioned freedom fighter when they find out it's all bogus. Everything's run by, by the masters of disruption. Because that's how you have control, is by causing disruption. You, you, you guide the disruption. You cause it to happen. You guide the outcomes of where you want it to go, the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And you can't fail by doing things that way, you see. Can't fail. It's done all the time. But the, the, the beauty of it is that, that it's so well, well camouflaged that even those who participate never really catch on to the bitter end as to who's really behind it and what it's really, really for. And to get great change for those who rule the world already, uh, you must always plan the change, manage all sides to, the, to force the change on them, and all combating forces too, uh, and then bring them into the new system that you planned in, at the very first, because it wouldn't have happened by itself. Folk are quite happy generally by the way things are. Even the moan and the complain, they're generally quite happy the way things are. And you see it now with the with agenda for the whole 21st century, with its different parts, 2015, 2030, etc., different segments of it, where things must be accomplished in each segment for, throughout this century. Uh, they, mean it, they mean what they say. Uh, and you have to go back to the old idea of no private property. No private property. I used to get kind of excited when I realized that that Freemasonry, for instance, the Scottish writer Freemasonry, and Albert Pike talked about it, it was the curse of private property. And then you found that Karl Marx, of course, wanted the abolition of private property and marriage as well. And so they give you a, what they'll call is a slightly a different, a slightly different, a more watered-down version. We'll just call it socialism, national socialism, eh? uh, which is just the same thing again. You know, uh, it gets you a, a longer, it takes a longer trick to get there. That's what uh, Stalin also said. That he said, uh, what, is, "What is socialism? What is communism?" Says communism is socialism in a hurry. Just a quick, a quick revolution, and then you got it. Then you can call yourself a socialist if you want to. But you've had the revolution. It was a Fabian society, uh, set in Britain, and funded by the richest folk on the planets at the time, like the Astor families and others. They're all part of it. Andrew Charles, because because they own all sides. You, you got to own all sides if you want com- competing party and uh, conflicting parties that will fight, and push and argue to get changes, because you plan the changes. And you get them to argue out in parliaments and so on. This, this party versus that party. And, and you bring the, the desired conclusion along, you see. That's how it's done. Folk never catch on to it at all. But the Fabian Society um, literally boasted, if you get the old books from it, when uh, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells were the top members at the time, amongst others, of course, the... the uh, they, they had corris- lots of correspondence with uh, with the Soviet Union, the early Soviet Union too, and they, they boasted they had a direct line to the desk of uh, Lenin and then Stalin, 
And then, of course, they, they had a, then Trotsky, and then, then they had a little tiff. You still see the old, the old letters from Trotsky addressed to them, if you bother to read through them. Most folk don't, don't read this stuff, but it's interesting to see the, the, the slanging matches. We've got a slanging match, match where they'd, they'd, they'd criticise each other because Trotsky wanted instant rebellion and stop this non- playing the political game to achieve your, your goals by the Fabian, meaning the slow technique. Uh, you have a revolution, but they wouldn't go along with it. They were tempted at times to try and go along with it, but they didn't think they'd get away with it at the time. And the public, they couldn't get the public ready for revolution uh, so quickly. Uh, so they, they did the same with Germany, of course. The Germany, you find lots of, of articles put out by the top Soviets at the time, who before World War Two and even up leading up to World War One, uh, they hoped to bring uh, uh, Germany into a, a revolution for communism, as they were going to do in, with, with with Russia with the Bolsheviks. And they, th- they thought we having a revolution. They tried a couple of ones which failed there, but. When you read their, 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 how they analysed the data when it, when it all failed, they said that the German people, this is, even though they're mainly working class people, very robust and hard working people, uh, they just wouldn't fall for this idea of, of a communist system. A lot of them were still religious, by the way, you know, in, in Germany. And so they couldn't get them to just uh, overthrow their governments and. Uh, and and, and they really hated it when the Germans would take up arms when told to go and fight for the country. They, that they, they hated them for the working class for doing that. I never forgave them for that. And of course, Britain also had uh, a, a, a little revolutions that they attempted at the time in London. And you can still see the, the, the old photographs of Winston Churchill in his big top hat at the time, with with uh, policemen standing with shotguns around a, a building near the quay in the, in the Thames where the, the communists had hoped the revolution started were holed up. But, uh, yeah, it's quite amazing when they, when they were doing that, they always have the standbys, the, the, the trusty method of doing it, which is the Fabian technique of slow, slow, incremental changes. Until, I mean, yeah, sure, after World War Two, I mean, Britain went into World War Two, giving the excuse to the public, you know, because you always get excuses, never the truth, of why they were going to fight Germany. But they were, but they were going to fight supposedly to save their way of life and their culture, and their traditions and everything, you know. And uh, so they're going to they're going to fight National Socialism, which was Germany, the National Socialist Party. And at the end of World War Two, suppose, supposedly the victors that were worse off in Germany, in fact, <laughs> Germany got on its feet far back faster too, with economic aid from all the countries, and and through the United Nations and the world and the World Bank. They got Germany on its feet much faster. But uh, Britain emerged from World War II as a national socialist country. The very opposite of what, uh, what it, uh, well, actually what it was fighting initially. So uh, you understand you're, you're taken for a ride when you lose your sensibilities and you start parroting propaganda. And you start believing in the propaganda. You, you've lost your sensibilities. You won't actually see what's really happening. And the folk don't see what's happening as they go through, let's save ourselves, they lose all sensibilities when it's panic mode, you know, whether it's a pandemic or it's, it's a war, you're all going to die, give up your rights and freedoms, do what you're told, and starve yourselves through, through rationing and, 
obey, and they all do it dutifully. They, they never fail. So Hitler mentioned that too, so did Stalin. And Stalin was more vocal about it. The techniques worked so well for terrorizing the public. Get them to obey you, to save their lives, and then you do whatever you want with them. It never fails, but folk always forget. Most folk lose their sensibilities right off the bat. They really do. And then the member the Green Party, I've got an article somewhere, quite a few years ago, in Britain, where she said that she looks back with nostalgia at the way her parents and so on put up with World War Two and the Blitz in London, and, and, she's, and they seem so happy and, and resolute to get through it, even though they're on terrible rationing and so you have starvation, but, they, but everybody obeyed the law and they did what they were told, and that, that's what appeals to those in power. When you do what you're told and obey them <laughs> and, and put up with all kinds of hardships which you shouldn't be putting up with in the first place. Nothing changes. And what's that got to do with anything today? Well, you're going through it again. If you really think this pandemic just came out the blue, fine, you can toss about that up in the air and argue about it forever if you want to, but the preparations for it certainly did not. And you can't, I I keep saying this, you know, in the 1990s, the project for a new American century, the PNAC group, that eventually got in with George Bush, you know, and and, in the 90s, when they they met more informally, even though some of them were in governments at the time too, they, they they wrote the list out, the list of countries they wanted to invade and take over and plunder across the Middle East and so on, in Asia. And we've been doing that ever since, actually. And they got little George Bush in there, and the same members, of course. And 9-11 happened. They even said it in, in their articles. They need something to get the... The first thing you must do is get public opinion on your side. You must get the support of the people if you want to go to war, you see. So they said they would need something on, on the scale of a Pearl Harbor event. Well, no one's going to complain about Pearl Harbor. Well, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Of course, there's lots of things about that, but regardless, they did attack it. And that's what you need to get to go to war, you see. And bingo, I mean, literally, within two years or one year, they got what they wanted, 9-11 hand. What luck for them, eh? They, they actually say to get all this agenda done, eh? This would have, you would need a Pearl Harbor event to galvanize the people to be behind you for war. And bing, they get it. They get it. And then all your freedoms get tossed, not just in the U.S., but across the planet. Everybody's in the same mode. Oh, we're, we're all allies. Oh, let's all sign the same things in the law. Let's use high technology to censor speech and monitor the people. Let's build, build big, almost cities to collect all the data and for everybody's chit-chat, etc. Like the NSA and all the organizations they're using. I mean, and then you train the people not to mind it. And sure enough, eventually they get used to it. Do you ever wonder why folk put up with the Soviet Union for so long? They got used to it. We can get used to pretty well anything. You get used to it. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's right or proper. 
And once you get, they know it too, that once you get, say, 20 years of constant surveillance and, and facial recognition and all, thumbprints, iris scans, da 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 they can push it to the next step because they've all accepted it. It's normal. You normalize, you normalize anything. It's a new normal. I came out with a new normal years ago. And here's another new normal that you're going through now because here's the second phase of it. And so at the World Economic Forum, you have all these big industries and the electronic companies and all work with them. They're all part of, by the way, of the military-industrial complex, all these different ones that are going to churn out your bracelets and apps and so on. For, for monitoring you for COVID and all that. Can you can you get out your house? Can you not get out your house? You've got to get this app. Yeah, yeah. These are the same people that, who, who are part of, of the, or the, the... These people are part of the military-industrial complex. E- each corporation that you hear is a part of it. And so they get big money from the taxpayers again because you're in a fascist society and then they, get, they make more chains for you and you'll adapt into it as well. Well, I can't go. I have to go to that flight. I've got to get my, my app upgraded for my immunity passport and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's what, That will be common phraseology uh, given three years from now. Here's one example right here. One of many, actually. Just with the bracelets alone, never mind the apps that they have for your phones. And of course, everybody's going to run towards it. I could get the app on my phone and give it snob appeal and give it more. What you buy this one is expensive. I mean, it's a better one than the commoner's one. Folk are really pretty dumb, you know. You really see it coming out in times like this. Like these. Anyway, this one here is coronavirus monitoring bracelets flood the market, ready to snitch on people who don't distance. Wow. There you go. And uh, and that's what they, they've even got them for factories, by the way. They're, they're and adapting them so that they'll go off with alarms if you're if you're closer than six feet away. Even I've got articles here today where in Britain, I think elsewhere, they're they're dropping it to maybe well maybe three feet okay away. You know, is is it, is it just the magic slide rule? <laughs> it's it's all magic. It's nothing to do with reality or or science. So anyway, here they go. It says, surveillance firms around the world are licking their lips at a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to cash in on the coronavirus by repositioning one of their most invasive products, the tracking bracelet. That's the one that Tam and, and Candace pushing. Of course, you mentioned that years ago. Been interesting to, to find out how many at the top have got, got shares in the products as well, by the way. They'll be given shares, I'm sure, to promote them in their own countries. Body monitors are associated with criminality and guilt in the popular imagination. The accessories of Wall Street crooks under house arrest and menace to society parolees, unlike smartphones, de facto tracking devices in their own right strapped on trackers, are expressly designed to be attached to the body and exist solely to report the user's whereabouts and interactions to one or more third parties. They don't play podcasts or tell you how many steps you took that day to... Sweeten the surveillance. This is but a climate of perpetual bioing. Anxiety has paved the way for broader acceptance of uh, carceral technologies with a wave of companies trying to sell tracking accessories to business owners eager to reopen under the, the aegis of responsible social distancing <laughs> and to governments hoping to keep a closer eye on people under quarantine. And it goes on and on. But that's this one example, and that's, that's from Global Research. 
and it's a longer article, of course, but uh, I know they're also putting into it, into them, uh, more data, and uh, and of course the reports you if you're out of, you see they put you into a certain area, which of course all all totalitarian systems do eventually, and of course under Agenda 21 they don't want you moving outside your area that you live in. Huh? Did you know that? <laughs> I hope you know that. Under the agenda for the whole 21st century, they actually mentioned eventually they'll phase out all privately owned vehicles. And, uh, but you'll be locked down basically, with or without pandemics, in your own little area. That's how, it's more tidy that way. If your masters like it to be tidy and efficient, you understand. And if, if you're taking time off to go holidaying across the countryside, that's awfully untidy. Uh, and you should do what you're told and be good and stay in your own little area. Where you're monitored and your little bracelet won't go off. But that's what I could get. I mean, this this stuff really is all for one. This is never going to go away. I hope you understand this. They're licking their lips at the top, and just like the the nine eleven with the incredible surveillance laws that they just rammed down everybody's throats without a, without an asking. Do you mind? Uh, it's never going to go away because it's so lucrative. We're slaves. You understand? We are slaves. And as far as those at the top, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, are concerned, and the Club of Rome, we're obsolete slaves. We really don't have any rights because they don't need us anymore. We're, we're, they're only suffering us. You know, we're, we're in sufferance at the moment. That's how they put up with us. Not because they really want to. And they don't really need us so much now, you see. They really don't. And they planned the great leap forward into the future, into their, their modern utopia that they keep telling us all about. That's just for themselves, with a vastly reduced population, like the Georgia Gainstones prattle on about, and that uh, people like uh, oh, Jacques Cousteau is one, and David Attenborough. But Jacques Cousteau was awfully good about it. He said quite openly uh, when he was when he, in between, you know, uh, you know, cuddling his fish and everything, he, he mentioned that they'd have to kill off I mean, 140,000 people a day, every day, rapidly over the normal death rate. Uh, to bring the population down over so many years to a more acceptable level. I guess to get more, more, more room for his fish and things, I suppose, you know. Yep. And they always give you these same, same characters. They're all eugenicists, you know. They, we look at the organizations they belong to. But they always put them in, in, in getting the children to like them because the children follow the heroes, you see. And... Uh, that David Suzuki in Canada, who he said we were maggots, actually. We're just maggots living on, on, on the droppings of a higher of all maggots above us, you see. That's what he said, eh? And David Attenborough has been very blatant about it. They made him a sir for being so blatant about it, which tells you a lot right off the bat, too, of who runs the show at the top. And Prince Philip's organizations, of course. Eh? But... Uh, it's astonishing we, what we live in and, and how people hear everything that they should be wary of. They hear about it and should take action, but they don't. They, they, think, well, they can't mean what they say. Do you understand that that happens before every terrible catastrophe in history? Oh, they wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that, you know. When you look at the Crusades... The Crusades were, were, were horrific, horrific ordeals for every side that took part in it. And yes, you had the Muslim invasions in, in Spain, so they got them driven back again and so on. But then you, then you had them following on to that thing and they go into the, into the Holy Lands and, and um, 
and really quell Muslims and so on, and plunder, do a bit of plundering at the same time. It's always beneficial to those involved. But some of the cities that uh, Christians were holed up in when they were conquered over in the Middle East, uh, they, 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 they would take the women and then behead everybody that was left. You know? Like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people get beheaded, and that was, and the Christians did the same thing in some of the cities. They took over, and I guarantee you, when the cities surrendered eventually, the people would, would all be looking at each other, thinking, "What are they going to do? They're going to kill us?" No, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. It's unthinkable that people would do that. And so you, you cling to that little bit of hope of, of well, I wouldn't do that personally. So they won't do it either. Well, and of course they'll get slaughtered. How many times down through history do you think that's happened? Hmm? It always happens. Well, they never do that. Well, we're civilized now. Every generation down through centuries have said the same. Well, we're civilized now. You know, we're, we're more civil. No, no. Always. Ha- do you know in Scotland? In Scotland, when they had uh, the, the rebellion for Prince Charles, not, not the present Prince Charles, <laughs> I'm talking about the, the guy who, who, who wasn't quite so deformed. Uh, he was young Charlie, and um, he led the rebellion, supposedly. They, they could have maybe even won it, they'd speculate too, because it got down to Derby, and, in, and London was evacuating when the, when the armies went down there. But then they, they, they got bad news, and, and there was a, an awfully good spinner, of tales sent out to deceive them and says, oh, the, the English army's arrived on the coast. They hadn't arrived on the coast. But they believed that and started retreating back up to Scotland. Well, that, that was decided by by uh, England, or London really, who ran everything, that, that uh, they'd annihilate the Highlands. Annihilate, absolutely annihilate them. And the troops they sent up there after the battle were really convicts. <laughs> And murderers, but they were given permission to go slaughtering through all the highlands, and they did. They wiped out thousands of families, thousands of them. Now that was an ancient history. Yeah? It was not long just before the American Revolution, in fact. And and it's happening in your own country, right? And I'm sure they're all saying the same thing that it could never happen. They'd never do that, but they did. They did. And then for a hundred years after that, they, 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 they were deporting them off the land to Australia, Canada, and everywhere else. And for the males especially, that they were fighting age, they could always, they could always join the, the British military and go off and fight and win the wars for, for the city of London. Who ran everything, that's where all the money was involved. And the average English person was just the same, because they, had, they were just as basically <laughs> in the dark about how things really ran as, as the peasants in Scotland. But London was the centre of all, very old, old centre indeed. But, uh, yeah, every, every, down through the ages, that's how it is. Oh, they'd never do that now. They'd, they'd never do that now. And then again, as I say, when, when Britain had its empire on the go, uh, you have to look at the, the Official Secrets Act. Every country uses it now. But Lord Kitchener... His his record couldn't be opened for the general public to see for over a hundred years. Now he was a troubleshooter of the day for the empire, and 
he, he would cross Africa, North Africa, and he was sent into India and so on after rebellions. And he would just have them slaughtered. He, he would just use martial law. I think it was what, every fifth man, you know, in a village, whatever, just, just grab them, doesn't matter who they were, and pull them out, and, and, and in front of the rest of them, shoot them, you kill them. And, and that, was, that was the lesson that you put out there. The, the war of terror didn't start with Lenin. Lenin really understood it perfectly well. And the Bolsheviks understood it awfully, awfully well. But when it came to running empires, there's nothing new in this. It's total brutal force. That's what they do. So Kitchen's, Kitchener's record wasn't opened up for about 100 years. And uh, yeah, this this bemedaled character with, with high high rank, who did his, his best supposedly for the British. This strange the entity, it's a corporation called the, the Empire, because only a few thousand folk in London really benefited from it to run all the businesses. You know, but he was a guy that they sent for to to deal with the problems, and and that's how it's always been. That's how it always will be. But the folk don't, again, every, look at all these little places in India that were rebelling, or even about like a food or whatever it was, or you name it, stuff getting taken from them, resources and all that. And, and uh, that's enough to get them killed. One out of five, I'd mark, that's it. <laughs> the riot act, you see. Uh, now I'll teach them for a while, and then they'll be quiet again for a while. It did the same across Africa and so on. And I'm not saying that all these countries were, were deadly peaceful either, because they weren't. Same as Africa. Africa's had had the, the warring tribes for, well, for probably thousands of years. And the Zulus certainly were efficient warriors, but they were also mass slaughterers as well. And eugenicists, by the way. Great story there. Really fascinating to when you read it, and how uh, Chaka the Zulu formed them, and... He uh, he literally had everybody under. He couldn't join them. He would kill everybody under under about five feet eleven. I think it was, including the females, until they got a, a, a people growing up that were really strong and tall and all the rest of it. A eugenicist. I often wonder where he got the idea, but he certainly wasn't and in, in getting uh, information from traders certainly, who who'd supply him with with goods from I think it was Holland or parts of Europe anyway. Who maybe gave him the idea, I don't know, but he certainly was very efficient in what he did, <laughs> and utterly ruthless. But things really are, are much the same across the world, down through the centuries, for the techniques that are used on the people. They'd never do that. They'd never do that. Think of the people dur during the, the bubonic plagues, who were burned out with their villages, as, as, the, as the, the nobility all came from scattered around the countryside in their biggest states and ran into the castle, you see, uh, for protection. And they'd bring in what food they could and yada, yada, yada. And, but on the way, they'd have the, the, the remaining peasantries burnt down and out their homes. They'd, and during the winter and so on, then they'd die. The winter coming on. And their food all taken off them into the castle. Their homes burned down in order to stop the plague getting to the castle. That was standard stuff, you know. Life is a pretty horrific thing, and we have to we have to acknowledge it, because when we forget how horrific it is, especially when it comes to those who want power, 
and then her given power, uh, you can't take your eyes off them for a second. You really can't. And the megalomaniacs, megalomaniacs that you'll see craving the power openly, uh, you should have the, you should really, really be <laughs> on their utmost guard to make sure these characters never get into power. If they're in power, get them out. I don't care what party they belong to. Because behind them, today, as you well know, most of them are just fronts for bigger powers behind them all. And they know that, too. But for the ordinary people, you've got to, you've got to start to, to the, the way that you watch the, the, those nature programs are getting you used to the idea that, oh, well, sometimes, you know, when all these deer move in there, you know, the, the wolves have to come in behind them and thin down the herd a bit. Because uh, it's a culling, or else the you know the big landowner has to do a culling. The Lord, like Prince Philip used to give a great speech about that. He loved to repeat it. How he used to cull them, the excess ones, the deer, you know. But he was in, in the speech. He was referring to people, by the way. He was used as an analogy when there's just too many people about. Well, it seems the practical thing to do is just cut off the food supply. Hmm? And then the, 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 the people who sit and they watch their Disney programs and their, their, their happy, happy programs on TV. When they hear Prince Philip saying, or oh, they read the articles verbatim from the top magazines on the planet, <laughs> putting the speeches in that he gave at some of these Sierra Club meetings and so on, and world uh, meetings, he would, uh, they, oh, he didn't really mean it. He's, he's just a bit angry today, you know, he's a bit off. You see, they don't have to make excuses for themselves. Nice people make excuses for them. Terrible, isn't it? But look at what's happening now. Say, 9-11 took so many rights away, and now the folk accept it. And the next phase of the new system, which again the Rockefellers came out with 2010, for the foundation, of course, by the big foundation. Remember that the Rockefellers were the ones who really ran the CFR on behalf of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, this private club that runs the world. And uh, he's up there, he was a chairman for, for the U.S. branch for years, and then the assistant there as he was getting older, but he also was up there picking the trilateral groups, the, the real movers and shakers, starting with Jimmy Carter. And, uh, and they're on the go today for efficiency's sake, they, they bypass and get round democracy and, and public debate. So there they're out there today, uh, doing their thing, uh, during a pandemic, and bingo, you've got, they bring out Dershowitz, oh, you know, like he's, what is Dershowitz? I mean, who appointed this guy to be anything, huh? Huh? Sometimes you have to toss the, this book of law out the window, you know, and do, do what is needed to be done to survive. You have to pull him out the closet every so to tell you. And, and that you've got to take some kind of vaccination, according to, was it Leviticus, wasn't it? He said in his little talk there. Well, good for him if he believes that. Then, then um, leave that to him to believe, and you don't have to believe it or go along with it for that matter. But uh, I didn't hear God saying to, to let some corporation stick its brew in anybody's arms. I haven't seen that anywhere. 
And by the way, I think Mr. Dershowitz should maybe read his Bible a bit more, his Torah, because uh, in there there's a whole bunch of things they're not supposed to take into their bodies. And uh, when you look into what's in the vaccines, <laughs> it's worse than some of that stuff. So I think, you know, I think there'd be actual rules against the concoctions that they're bringing, bringing up all together. It's the same thing they used to pull out Alan Greenspan, like he was some kind of deity. And I really mean that. The way that the media would, oh, Alan Greenspan's going to come out and address the nation tonight. And they'd have this kind of stage thing, and up, up like come the lights, and you see him walking out of the darkness of the stage. And it looked very firm and stern. And, and really, it really, it's all for effect. It was very dramatic, you see. He knew what he was doing. And, he, and he'd look left and right and stare and still wouldn't say anything. And everybody's sort of breathing and holding their breath. And he's talking about, it was to do with the, the, with the stock market. He'd say, cool it. That was all, cool it. Then they'd all, I mean, they'd go, the printing presses would go, Burr. he said, cool it. He said, cool it. The stock market is too hot. Burr. God has spoken. A complete fabrication of nonsense because the whole system is so bogus. The stock market's been propped up by the taxpayers every night under a particular act for, for the last, what, 30-odd years or 40 years. So there's nothing real about it. Any, any more than there's anything real about the, about the Federal Reserve in the States, which is owned from outside forces too. <laughs> There you go. But eh? we live in fantasy. A, a, a very carefully contrived fantasy, isn't it? The stock market is, is contrived and rigged completely. The, the financial system is completely rigged completely as well. I can remember many years ago, the Bank of Canada had a, a little, there's a little documentary on it, just a very short one, probably on the National and the CBC, when they used to do the occasional little bit of stuff that was a bit, no, I wouldn't call it testy, but uh, interesting, rather than fallacious. And they said, did you know that the Bank of Canada isn't a bank at all? And uh, they showed you the building where, where they where meet, and it's the appointee, the government appointee, that represents the Bank of Canada, that would meet there with other members of government to arrange loans on behalf of outside sources. That's what it was. There was no bank there at all. Now, at one time, there used to be a bank, and I did a, a, a talk on that years ago, uh, when Canada used to uh, literally issue its own currency and spend it in a circulation. That's how it was done by the government. And even during the Great Depression, uh, you can still see the old articles are put out by, by other countries as well as Canada, because the countries would come to Canada to see how it was. Canada was the only country that wasn't really suffering badly in the Great Depression, because it printed its own currency. The government printed it. It wasn't, they didn't put it out to a private company. Now it does, you see. Since, since again, Pierre Trudeau came and he changed it. That was Justin's uh, daddy and... Um, and since then, we, we were loaded with massive debt like everybody else. But before that, we didn't have debt. We're under a, a common system run by the same folk, the same gang. And the, the always says, well, it's too complex for average people to understand. Well, no kidding. This, as I've said last week, it's like voodoo, you know. It's not based on anything at all. I mean, I could, I could I'm pretty sure I could, 
if they let me near just for a day and to see a Federal Reserve Bank or the Bank of Canada uh, when they're arranging their loans for the week for the country, right? From the private one. I, I'm sure I could print in, I could just look up the main sum that's owed, you see. Or see, it's supposedly in your, in your checking account. It's all board money for, for, for Canada, for the government. And I'm sure I could add one or two zeros to the end of that number, just, just to stretch out a bit further. Because that's all they're doing. They're not handing any cash over when you borrow money from the private sector. Just damn. It's all just, you just add zeros to the end of, of an actual number. That's all you do. Keep extending it. That's what the Federal Reserve does. They, they don't put enough. There's no, there's no gold <laughs> in Fort Knox. That all went a long time ago. Quietly, too. But uh, it, it's just fascinating to realize that we live in a fantasy world. And everybody, uh, everybody's... It's like the air you breathe. It's, it's just natural. You, you're probably using this thing called money. And everybody expects it to circulate, and and sometimes you'll notice you need more of, of X amount of dollars to buy the same handful of groceries that you buy every week or whatever. Uh, and sometimes you need more dollars, and sometimes it's maybe a little bit less, but generally it's always more. And it's said to be that way, you see, and we accept that as normal too. There's no reason for it given to the public, but well, it's inflation, really. What it means is, since your money's based on nothing, but they pretend it's still based on some kind of standard. It's all pretense. I mean, the whole system is pretense. If it, if it was, if it still was, say the British system used to be a, a pound sterling, sterling silver. Okay? Uh, that's how things were worked out. And there was little physical money they used to have gold coins too, which like guineas and so on, which, which they would they'd use for the big banks and so on. But the, the, the currency was based on sterling, silver. And you had pound shillings and pence. And uh, it had half crowns and, and, and florins and shillings and so on. But silver, uh, all the way down to, to silver sixpences and things like that. But it was real wealth. It was a real silver, you see. So that was passed around, that was real wealth. But when eventually they took it off the, the standard, they kept saying it, you know, sterling silver, and they were pounds sterling, but they took all the silver out of circulation and gave you substitutes, you see, of fake rubbish. Look at, look at the pennies you have today, even in Canada. Uh, they, they did away with them in Canada, but they, they, already, they weren't copper anymore. See, everything had a real value. Copper, your pennies were real copper. So, so you had to get um, so many of them to make up X amount, the equivalent of X amounts of, of sterling silver for a pound. That's how it was worked out. And, and so it, it was a real type of currency. It really had value. But once you took them off even the gold standard that was all put against, supposedly, by the Bank of England, they had massive vaults with the gold in it. Uh, and it was based on nothing to back it. And then they took the silver out of circulation. There's nothing yet. The whole thing is built on faith. And the priests of the, that run the faith system there uh, literally decide what's going to be worth that day. You know, your, your, your pound is worth this today. 
uh, and meaning, meaning you get more of it to buy the same as a handful of groceries or something. And it's the whim of whoever tells you that. It's not really based on anything. But they run it today as though it's still based on, on, on backed by gold or something, because do you realize that if you went back 40 years, say in, in the UK, you could, you could probably live pretty well on, on 20 pounds a week 40 years ago. Now you'd need hundreds and hundreds of pounds, maybe even just to pay your rent. Because they say, oh, it's inflation. Because they keep devaluing the currency because, supposedly, um, the, the company owes that much abroad or to the lenders or whatever it happens. So they keep devaluing the currency. Uh, and you end up having to pay more and more and more. So we need more and more of that paper or plastic or whatever it is to get the same amount of stuff. And, and we're taught that this is normal. And yet nobody can explain it to you properly. Because as I say, it's as though it's still to do with, with real value. There is no real value since it's backed by nothing. You can't compare it to anything. It's just somebody's, somebody's idea. What the price of anything is today. It, not saying, well, we owe so many billions abroad, and here's the exact amount, so therefore we have to value it. It's, it's not even that anymore, you see. Because, it, the, because it's nothing, nothing's based. All they do is, is put blips on computers across the planet. That's all it is. Greenspan said one thing, it was true. He did say that um, we can never go bust again, he said, if we don't want to go bust. He says, because we just keep printing money up. That's what he said, because it's based. It just, at one time, the, the paper money used to be uh, represent what they actually had in actual gold or silver in the big bank vaults. That's what it represented. So technically, we're not, we weren't supposed to print more money than you had gold, real gold and real currency to back it with. It was a, a note was a representation of something that was real and tangible at one time. That was all done away with too. Anyway, I'm getting off the topic. What I'm saying is we live in a world of fantasies where we don't realize how fragile everything is because it's bogus. It, it truly is bogus. And today, for instance, and you know, we all know this, we're supposed to go through another phony war with China. Just like we had the big phony war with, with the Soviet Union. And in a great respect, it was phony. There was little battles and skirmishes at the bottom to make it all real for those near the bottom or those who participated at the bottom level. But... Uh, but we've got to remember that the presidents and prime ministers talked to their counterparts in the Soviet Union every day from Britain and the States and everywhere else on their, on their special phones, you know, to make sure that nothing went wrong. They'd have little tit-a-tats and little spats and things, but it didn't amount to much at all. Uh, but the, at the bottom level, yeah, they'd put occasional troops in behind enemy lines here and there. Who would get caught because you had spies on all sides turning them in. But, uh, but, but for above that, uh, it was really well run <laughs> to make sure nothing really happened. And it was so lucrative for all sides, for, for the weapons industries, that, that they wanted to go on forever. They really did. 
but Russia eventually couldn't keep up with it. You know, see, Russia is just as crooked as everybody else, like the West was. And they had their elite living so high in the hog in this, this socialist paradise that was meant for those in the top. That even when the wall fell down, pre-planned, of course, they, they, they rushed out. And the, and the newspapers at the time, they showed you even a relative, I can remember, of Lord Rothschild in, in England uh, was leaving the Soviet Union. And, and his family, this particular member of the family, had been managing the top banks in Russia for a generation at least, you know. And folk thought, well, I thought that, I thought everything was centralized, but all the all the nonsense we were told by the Soviet system. They, they didn't ban private banks, folks. They did, of course, they didn't. Who they didn't set it up? And they even made sure that most of the currency went through their hands was American currency. Americans helped. Americans gave them the plates. Do you know that during World War Two? Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, again, I'm getting way off topic because <laughs> sometimes it's staggering <laughs> when you think how the world is really run. It's staggering, and uh, and you, you must always keep keep tabs on all. Otherwise, you'll, you'll you'll get back into Disneyland, and oh, they'd never do that again, and so on. The best enemies money can buy. Anthony Sutton put out books on that. He's awfully good. Sutton, he did. Incredibly well documented investigations into the systems that we really live under, and have lived under, uh, right down to to uh, Wall Street, you know, and, and the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, how the the top bankers financed them, but they also financed the, the Japanese, by the way, for, for those who don't know that as well, and to, to even rearm and even even show them how to build the ships and so on for their navies and so on. That was all done by money from America mainly and London, but America at the time, well documented. And uh, so the best enemies money can buy and, and we, we, we financed and set up the Soviet Union. We fed them, we kept selling them grain right up through the 70s, 1970s and 80s, you know. And uh, made sure that, and even after the revolution, as they were slaughtering <laughs> the, the, what was left of the the middle classes, to, to wipe them out, were, like Trotsky said, we have we we have uh, annihilated and wiped out an entire class, maybe millions of people here. And the West, through that whole time, was putting out charity stuff to send them food, clothing, and and, and shoes, and so on, and. Lots of ruins for the the cold winters, and they they make the best enemies money can buy. Eh? And you have the again you have uh, who financed Hitler, Anthony Sutton again, excellent book to read for for those who don't know about it. Others did the same th- things too, good investigative uh, work. And um, but the thing is, what I'm saying is, nothing is ever as it seems. And we we people, we poor people, never get a proper education at school. You're not meant to know these things. You're supposed to get the the basic Disney version of things, and and believe it. And on the one hand, I see, I can see some, even psychologists say that it's important we believe the fairy tales, or we get so depressed that we become suicidal if you realize how bad the world can be. And the psychologists today and the behaviorists certainly should know that since most of them are working for the government against us. 
<laughs> to manage our thoughts, he said. That's where the money is, isn't it? Managing our thoughts and our behavior. But uh, but yeah, we. we I, I mean, I I've been going through the talks when we did the GATT treaty with China for China and got them into the World Trade Organization, and we fi- we financed them. To, China didn't pull itself up by its own boots. They were financed completely and trained by the West. Thousands of students per year came to Canada and Britain and elsewhere in the States to get trained in engineering and design, all these kind of things, electronics and so on, at universities. And we bent over backwards to make sure it happened and brought them in. And um, and then they, they, this is before they could even go home and find enough work for themselves in those days. We all done in advance. And then with the World Trade Order, we gave them the factories and signed for them to, to get move over to China. We paid for the top of all the factories to move to China. It's astonishing at the time living through it and realizing that no one was concerned about it. The people really believe the media is going to tell you what to worry about. They, they really believe that, that it is there to do the reasoning for them. That that's what Brzezinski said in his book, you know. That surely the public be unable to do their reasoning for them. They'll expect the, the media to, to do their actual thinking and their reasoning for them. Like warn them. Well, they don't warn you. Even when they're doing drastic things. Like, hey, do you realize the massive unemployment you're going to have when all these factories have gone to China? And how helpless you'll be if, if you ever get a tiff with China, if they ever decide to make it the big bad dragon again. Well, how can you make anything? Well, look at us today, you can't even make the face mask, you're going to say. You always plan the future and the disasters and the tiffs of the futures. That's what we do. You make the enemies your friends. You finance them up to be strong. Those who have the money live high on the hog and bring in big, big cash bonuses of cheap labor for a long time. And then when 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 the military-industrial boys said, well, you know, we're really missing the, the, the lucrative era of the Cold War. Can't they get another one? Well, here you go. So then you start you see, oh, oh, China's bad again, and, and, and so is Russia. And, and you understand that that's what the economy is there to serve. It's not for us. It's not for us. Those at the top, they, they'd love to have it all done by robots and machines. Because they, they really resent you having to get a wage to, to even keep yourself and feed yourself, you see. They, they hate that. It's just not efficient enough, you see. But with robots, robots wouldn't have to vote for anything or be kept happy and given entertainment to, you know, be, they wouldn't get up to no good, you know, and say, well, that's terrible, we're slaves. You know, only humans get to that stage, and they really resent that. It's a big psychological operation to keep us all just under the, just under the surface of, 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 of bubbling through to, into discontentment. That's what all the bureaucracies are for and for all the, all the surveilling on the internet and, and all your chats about to constantly analyzing the, the mood of the public, you know. So this particular member of the Rothschild family uh, was leaving the Soviet Union and going to Britain <laughs> to meet his cousin uh, with uh, lots of loot, of course, and a small private army, by the way, to the escorted them to the airport. So uh, it's just astonishing that uh, they can accumulate wealth regardless of the system or the name that the system is particularly called. 
Uh, but that was the beauty of that too, that, that, that you could make money as, and profit as long as it wasn't uh, off of people's labour. That's how they worded it through legalities as usual. And they got round all the different laws of the supposed centralised banking system of the state. There's also a way, isn't there, for those who are cunning enough to enough experience to to, to pull the, the wool over folks' eyes with terminology and an apparent understanding of things which most folk had never seen in that particular light before. We, we, we can't imagine it, you see, but things, things are much more simpler than that. And it's, it's just astonishing to us. It kind of entertains us too and puts us in a hypnotic state when you, you start getting, telling us big words and, and long phrases as they muddle up our thinking and using terminology. And, and then before you know it, you're pointing in their direction and you, you well, I guess they know what they're talking about because you don't. That's just it. That's the beauty of chronology. And it's, a, it's quite an art, chronology. But that's the world we're living in. So, as, as I say, uh, I'm going to mention some articles here in a regardless because we're going through amazing times. We're, we're living through history and government's doing all the things we're warned about over and over by folk who knew, who knew better from previous centuries. We hear it from George Orwell, we hear it from Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all these different people down through the ages. People who actually lived and, and, and helped create systems to break away from the old system of corruption and royalties and nobilities and aristocracies that ruled and banking systems too. And certainly, yeah, we always end up getting taken over by the same institutions step by step, often with different names and so on, but the same things by the same peoples who understand these things. They take over again, and you're right back to where you started eventually. Sometimes worse, it depends. I often look at this America and the potential it had was astronomical for, for doing good for its own people and giving some peace and so on, and how it was totally destroyed over time by a very very clever, quiet, intellectual wars, uh, which again were really fomented at the university levels by outsiders that came in with their, with their doctrines of revolution and, and to overthrow the people. No system's ever been perfect, remember, never. But in the U.S., for a period of time, regardless of what you decided you wanted to do or how you wanted to live, you were allowed to live like that for a long time until government stepped in. You could go off and live in a shack in some forest if you wanted to, and you'd be left alone to do it. But not, not anymore. They want money off you, no matter where you plop down your behind on a chair. They want money for it, for that little space you're occupying, and taxation. And for taxation, you, you go to then get a job to earn their kind of coin to pay them back with. It's such a racket. We're just slaves, as I say. And it's always used. It, terminology is what confuses folk. It's all just the terms that they use, you know. I mean, here's a few quotes just from Thomas Jefferson. Again, little little statements have such profound meanings and they're so simple to say and so simple even to just flash through your mind. But when you just dwell on it for a little bit, this is, these are statements that were made long before he came up with them. He was simply repeating them from previous centuries and nothing has ever diminished by time when it comes to these particular things to do with humankind and governments and so on. 
But he said here, he said, there's no justification for taking away individuals' freedom in the guise of public safety. Okay? There's no justification. No justification. He didn't say, generally no. He says there is no justification for taking away individuals' freedom in the guise of public safety. Because you understand all the tricks and cons that have been used in the past uh, are used today. It's the same thing. And they knew it so well back then. They had a better education back then in reality than, than we have today. And they didn't have TV to brainwash them with, with teams of psychologists and neuroscientists and behaviorists all working to bring you wonderful dramas that through fiction will bring you to the right conclusions and adopt the right opinions. He also said when you abandon freedom to achieve security, you lose both and deserve neither. When you abandon freedom to achieve security, you lose both and deserve neither. The issue today is the same as it has been throughout all history, whether man shall be allowed to govern himself or be ruled by a small elite. That's it. That's also what, well, of course, Thomas Jefferson was a Mason, but uh, that used to be the, the argument they had in Freemasonry for the U.S. was, um, and they called it the big experiment. It was the first experiment uh, to see if people could govern themselves, and if not, they would be ruled by a powerful elite, and that's what you've got, the latter. The second experiment, of course, was the Soviet Union, where they took it for granted you could never have the, the wherewithal, wherewithal to properly govern yourself, so you'd be done by experts, and that's what you're in today, by the way, if you haven't figured it out. And the experts are all employed by the small elite, the tyrannical elites that took over. He also says, I think myself that we have more machinery of government than is necessary. Too many parasites living on the labor of the industrious. Government big enough to supply everything you need is big enough to take everything you have. The course of history shows that as a government grows, liberty decreases. The two enemies of the people are criminals and government. So let us tie the second down with the chains of the Constitution so the second will not become the legalized version of the first. And isn't that the truth? And that's what it was meant to be. There's nothing that's happening today, really, that would have surprised these founding fathers, who again, who had a better education into history and how the world really ran and how it had run in the past and the different tricks that have been used on the public before to take the rights away, uh, that, that wouldn't surprise them that they were using different techniques today or different excuses today to take them away again. And, he, and he, again, Jefferson warned about the powers of the bank, the private banking monopolies. He said they were more powerful than standing armies to take your rights away. And when I think about it too, that as these trillions have been dished out to the, to the same people, Wall Street, etc., and the military boys at the very, very top, the big corporations. And don't forget that pharma is highly associated with the military-industrial complex, folks, including vaccines, because the biowarfare industry is completely intricately involved with making vaccines as well. That's how they they, they actually use the exploration of biology, of bacteria and viruses 
uh, is uh, to, to help you all, but really for the military industrial complex. It's a two way street. So we're going through it big time right now. Most folk don't don't figure it out. But uh, yeah, look at the rights that the people lost with nine eleven. Oh, you're all going to die again. Well, they weren't all going to die. But we can't have you can't have rights anymore. You got, we got to keep you safe, right? <laughs> so you end up having no rights to keep you safe. If you, if you don't if you have no rights, how on earth can you be safe, folks? Huh? Uh, it's quite quite amazing What a paradox as they say How they can confuse and muddle the brains Of the ordinary folk eh? The poor souls Aren't we all poor souls really living through all this, this nonsense And uh, Yeah the, the powerful elites have taken over The Hamilton version of America Is what prevailed And Hamilton and Jefferson Used to go at it a little bit you know, And they had, they had little differences and so on but Hamilton had been brought up with a silver spoon, be a gold spoon in his mouth uh, on an island. Uh, it was one of the islands off uh, St. Kitts. I think it was or Nevis. Understand they're even opening up his old or rebuilding his old family home and making a kind of monument to it for visitors. But he had a big slave plantation there. And Hamilton was all for uh, the, the British system and in many ways. And the bank, the private banking system, no, no, absolutely, he was all for that too. And his uh, Je- Jefferson apparently had visited his quarters at one point. Jefferson commented on how, how come all these portraits and paintings are of, of tyrants like, like Alexander the Great and so on. And that's, that's who, Alexander, uh, who Hamilton uh, admired. He admired all the, the tyrants in history that just took history by the by the horns, you know, the, and 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 pulled 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 everything through the the whole of time into new systems, and the ones who just took imagination and made it all come into reality. That, that's what Hamilton really uh, really admired tyrants. He didn't believe in the common people at all, and that was the differences that uh, between uh, him and Jefferson's way of looking at things. Quite interesting. It'd be interesting actually have them have them uh, on a on a program today on TV, like a debate thing. It'd be quite interesting to publicise that if you saw what was happening today. You can pretty well tell where both sides would be, both parties would be. So getting back to these bracelets, that's going to have your whole ID on them, and uh, initially they'll use your phones, of course, but they really want you to be tracked with something permanently that you can't take off. That's why the whole idea of the the type the type of um, vaccination that would also be a, a kind of tattooed imprint in your skin, keeping a record of all your vaccinations up to date. Uh, it's going to be a permanent thing. You, you're, you have to carry your whole history with you and to be accessed by your betters, the ones who rule over you, you see, uh, and their henchmen. Because folk, it's this henchman who end up uh, working for them. You, you know that under different names, and well, they're a, they're they keep they're peace officers or they're this that. No, no, no. These are henchmen, folks, and you're a slave. When you they, they, don't forget what a manacle is. I don't care if I want to call it a bracelet. It's a manacle, electronic or otherwise, and that's that's really what it is. That's a sign of a slave, and so is a, so is a tattoo enforced upon you. It's called a brand. That's, that's what you do with cattle, you brand them. You start seeing things as for what they actually are and what they want to do. But yeah, I, I gave a, these very talks in the 1990s 
of their whole vaccination record would have to be up to date. You wouldn't get into a store. Alarms would go off if you're uh, with something on your body if, if you weren't up to date with your vaccination. And here we are. Right? It's just amazing. But there you go. And uh, we're all going through the, this stuff. Too. The, we know from the beginning, as I've said before, one of your telltale signs of something being awry and not quite uh, quite right was when Fauci immediately said, well, after after he basically changed his mind about uh, uh, the, the pandemic, just being, it could be just a bad flu, he said, in the New England Medical Journal, I'll put that link up to, today too, for if you want to read it for yourselves as proof of it. But he said it might be no, no more than a bad flu initially. And then, of course, once they, they, they saw the dollar values and all the big corporations were calling them up, and, you know, brought, brought a good thing here. Then he, um, he he changed his mind and he immediately said, well, nothing's going to fix this except the vaccination. And we, we can't we can't get me out of lockdown until you've all got your vaccinations up to scratch. Um, you're talking about perpetual lockdown, folks. Do you understand that? This is the whole. This is the, this is the revolution I've been talking about. It's their revolution into the new paradigm of, of scientific management of society. Although it's all bogusly run, really, but under the guise of science, uh, total lockdown, new way of living, sustainability, all the things you, they couldn't get you to simply go along with, post-consumerist, all the rest of it. Here you go with it all. I mentioned that last week, and it's interesting, the next couple of days later, when the biggest show started mentioning the very same things I was talking about verbatim from my talk, which isn't unusual, actually, from the particular one. But here we go, through this this big agenda here, and everybody's on board with it. But yeah, pretty well at the start, he was all for this permanent lockdown, and along with the World Health Organization, and every chief appointed health officer for every nation, pretty well, is on board with the same thing. Isn't that a bit of a coincidence? The exact same thing? Huh? You, you think it'd be something... Well, it's a few countries that, that didn't go totally along with the same thing, that did very well, actually, without even lockdowns. So facts don't matter. The agenda's what's important to bring in a new way of living uh, into austerity. I used to give the talks that on austerity that the, that the countries all signed on at the United Nations for for sustainability. They called it austerity programs. And here you go. This is how you bring it in. Any, any excuse will do, right? And once you get the food, uh, well, who's growing the food? Who's planting it? Where's it coming from? Huh? When do you think it will start to really run out? The big boys at the top now. They, they do know. They're not sitting stupidly at the top. They have other well-paid professionals, as they, experts, as they say, looking at all the different scenarios here. They know what they're doing. But there's a big agenda to bring you into line into this new system. And it's horrific. Many folk will refuse to believe it. They're living that kind of... Oh, they, don't, they don't plan to do this forever. If they have their spike, which they obviously will do, even with the flu, it dies down in the, in the summer. The viruses do, and coronaviruses die down in the summer. Then they come back and they hit again around the late fall for the winter time into into the next spring. So you'd always get a bit of a spike, you see, returning. And they know that. That's why it's, oh, if we get a spike returning, we'll have to lock you down. Well, because they know it's going to return. 
That's the agenda. Remember they wanted, and Fauci wanted to deal a permanent lockdown into next year from the beginning. That's what he said. So they always get what they want, because there's a whole agenda to fulfill here, you know. Now, facial recognition is a big part of being a slave, too. And uh, the big corporations that all attend the World Economic Forum have look at the basket. We're, we're, the, we're all the eggs in the basket, you see. And they're all deciding how to make money off of each egg. And here they go. It's the state of facial recognition around the, the world. The whole world is their oyster now. And it says, in its most benign form, facial recognition technology is a convenient way to unlock your smartphone. However, again, that was giving us a good read. Well, that's plausible, you know. However, as visual capitalist uh, Iman Gosh notes, at the state level, facial recognition is a key component of mass surveillance and already touches half the global population on a regular basis. And then they go into North America, Central America, and Caribbean. In the U.S., a 2016 study showed that already half of American adults were captured in some kind of facial recognition network. More recently, the Department of the Homeland Security unveiled its biometric exit plan, which aims to use facial recognition technology on nearly all travel passengers by 2023 to identify compliance with visa status. And goes on and on and on about that. Oh, 59% of Americans actually in polled polls actually favor are in favor of implementing facial recognition technology because it's acceptable for use in law enforcement, you see, according to a Pew Research survey. <laughs> but at least some places like San Francisco have pushed a ban surveillance, citing a stand against its potential abuse. By government, you got to understand what Jefferson said too. He's always on about government will always abuse power if you let them on behalf of a small rich elite. You see, who always take it over, and that's where we are. And it says um, South America goes into Brazil and how they're um, cracking down on crime and they're using more and more facial recognition surveillance. Uh, Europe, of course, and, and China is way above there with their special glasses to that literally read up whoever whoever's walking past. You know, even a bit a dozen at a time, they can all come up at once in special glasses that the cops can can wear at the train stations and so on. They've shown that on little clips. So it's yeah, this is this is the, this is a fantastic time for making money off the slaves. And you're owned. We understand with with each right that you have to even be have, have privacy. Once it's gone, you're you're completely owned. And this, these are the reasons you had things like privacy and laws and rules and regulations and so on. And, and because uh, once they take it away from you, you're you're just a, an, an open slave with no rights at all, folks. Your immunity passport future begins to materialize as airlines call for the digital ID tracking systems. Well, let them call for all they want. Once again, you can't give in for big corporations of any kind. I don't care who they are. You can't give in because they want to take more and more rights away. Eh? Freedom of movement. Huh? They want it to be just for airlines. It can be, it'll be going to, to a few streets from your own home eventually. This is where it will go. I don't really mean that. <laughs> The world's largest airline trade group has called for immunity passports. Again, that's your, that's where all your vaccinations, thermal screening, uh, masks, and physical uh, distancing to be part of the industry's strategy for returning to normal operations. It goes once you start that, it's never going to be normal. Eh? Huh? 
So the International Air Transport Association, which represents 299 airlines, recently issued their publication called Biosecurity for Air Transport, a roadmap for restarting aviation, which outlines a strategy to open up air travel as governments begin to lift travel restrictions. Under a section titled The Passenger Experience and Temporary Biosecurity Measures, nothing is temporary when it comes to money and technology and making money off you. The IATA describes the vision of post-COVID-19 flights. The organization calls for contact tracing, a controversial method of tracking the civilian population to track the spread of COVID-19. Sure. (laughs) They say we foresee the need to collect more detailed passenger contact information, which can be used for tracing purposes, the report states. Where possible, the data should be collected in electronic form and in advance of the passenger arriving at the airport, including through e-visa and electronic travel authorization platforms. Interestingly, this call for pre-boarding check-in using electronic travel authorization platforms coincides with the recent announcement of the COVID Pass, they call it the COVID Pass, <laughs> and the Health Pass from Clear both of which call for digital ID systems using biometrics and storing travel, health and identification data. Alexander de Juniac, IATA's CEO, told Arabian Industry that a layered approach combining multiple measures which are globally implemented and mutually recognized by governments are the way forward for biosecurity. Any excuse will do, eh? Any excuse will do, folks. What was it Jefferson said about giving up your freedoms for security? <laughs> and um, the IATA also calls for temperature screening at entry points and airport terminals. They envision the airline experience involving physical distancing of three to six feet through the airport. And the group believes it's, uh, this whole distancing thing is completely bogus, folks. I'll touch on that later, too. It says, although the organization acknowledged that there is not currently a fast, reliable test for COVID-19, it doesn't matter. They believe that once an effective test is developed, it could be applied on entry to the terminal. They call for this measure to be incorporated into the passenger process as soon as an effective test validated by the medical community has been developed. Uh, expert groups and medical communities, they in charge of you. And... Um, Anthony Fauci, naturally, is is on the topic of immunity passports, too, with the World Health Organization. And Bill Gates is all this combat, this gang, eh? the very same kind of gangs, is, uh, like the criminal gangs that uh, Jefferson talked about. Eh? They always have nice titles and stuff, but it's a gang nonetheless. Anyway, they say the IET states that uh, immunity passports could play an important role in further facilitating the restart of air travel. The organization believes that if a person is shown to have recovered from COVID-19 developed immunity, they will not need a protective measure. Once medical evidence supports the possibility of immunity to COVID-19, then uh, IATA believes it's essential that a recognized global standard be introduced and that corresponding documents be made available electronically. This is a prison. I hope you understand. They're setting up a whole world prison here. And if they don't like you, eventually they'll just, you'll be you'll be surprised how immediately if they don't if they don't like what you're doing or what you're saying, you you'll just suddenly be diagnosed going through your thing as we well, got a temperature. Well, I don't think that my, my own personal temperature thermometer says I'm okay. Or oh, whatever one says, you, you we can't let you travel. 
uh, and it'll definitely harass you so you can't go anywhere. Yeah, they think I'm kidding. Do you really think I'm kidding, eh? Think that doesn't happen in real life, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, so they're talking about bringing in facial recognition, retina scanning, and or thumbprints. Remember these folk will have your DNA and everything on record here, folks. Your whole history. Mm-mm-mm. And I'll put these links up too. And that one is from the Last American Vagabond, it says. That, that site is not bad at all. California doctors say they've seen more deaths from suicide than coronavirus since the lockdowns. Again, too, they knew from the beginning, they had all these psychologists on board with their hands. Everybody who, who studies you all, you know, we're the ants, you see, they're all studying us. They've got their hands out. We'll do another study on this and the whole bit and see how we can do it. Great times to, to do big experiments on the general population. That's what they're doing right now. All they do with future control, you see, more effective control. So there, so there, there's more suicides and folk at home not. So doctors in North California say they've seen more deaths from the suicide than they've seen from the coronavirus. The numbers are unprecedented, Dr. Michael uh, Boysblank, I guess it's called, of, uh, of John Muir Medical Center in Walnut Creek, California, told ABC7 News about the increase of deaths by suicide and that he's seen a, a year's worth of suicides in the last four weeks alone. This boy's blank said he believes it's time for California officials to end the stay-at-home order and let people back out into their communities. He said, I think initially it was okay, is what he's saying. It was put in place to flatten the curve, as they say, but it really didn't. You understand, this whole idea of flattening the curve is a novel thing too, because every other coronavirus before in the history uh, you, you and, and flus as well, you see. Uh, you go through it, then you get herd immunity. Folk get sick. There's always the elderly die. That's standard every year, folks. Hate to, hate to break the bad news, but that's often what happens. And uh, and then you get over it with herd immunity. But if you lock people down, they're not mixing to pass on to get the herd immunity. Remember, most folk with this COVID-19 don't even know they've had it. They have no symptoms. Others, the smaller minority that have, 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 have a few symptoms, are very, very mild. And they say elderly with who have other complications, they get hit hardest. And that happens every year with every kind of virus that comes out at this time of year, at that time of year, in the winter time, into the spring. You know that, that's, that's the standard history. But the lockdown is stopping the children from mixing. The children are the greatest carriers of all these things. They, make, they always spread colds and flus and viruses throughout the community and bring them home and into their streets and so on. That's what happens. And then everybody picks it up one way or another, whether they know it or not, and then they get immune to it. That's, that's, that's how you herd immunity. This lockdown, this experimental lockdown for when the first time in history, which makes no sense unless it's deliberate for a different reason, you see. And that's, I think it's the latter. But, but the total lockdown of the healthy stops them getting herd immunity. So it's pretty well guaranteed to spike again in the fall. That's this, this is what they, this is, this is planned to happen. They're not stupid at the top. But they say, yeah, you don't lock down the healthy people. That's how you would get herd immunity. 
so anyway, this is talking about suicide and so on. By late March, more people had died in just one Tennessee county from suicide than had died in the entire state directly from the virus. A study published in early May suggests that coronavirus could lead to at least 75,000 deaths directly brought on by anxiety from the virus, job losses, and addiction to alcohol and drugs. Another study conducted by Just Facts around the same time computed a broad array of scientific data showing that stress is one of the deadliest health hazards in the world and estimate that the coronavirus lockdowns will destroy seven times as many years of human life than strict lockdowns can save. Earlier this week, more than 600 doctors signed their names in a letter to President Trump referring to the continued lockdown as a mass casualty incident, urging him to do what he can to ensure they come to an end. Well, unfortunately, look at all the the other articles I've read there about all the different um, surveillance systems and tracking systems going to make billions of money off us all. (laughs) Well, they're going to make this drag on as long as they... And probably, possibly if they can get away with it forever, folks. It's to bring in a whole new way of existing. I won't say living. It won't be living, it'll be existing. Uh, This this system, a post-consumerist society, the austerity agenda. Hmm? Another one, too. Uh, similar to that one prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Wellbeing Trust reported that more lives had been lost to deaths of despair in 2017 than ever before. The primary response at, the t- at that time or the time was to look at the, the opioid epidemic, but that didn't even come close to tra- cracking all the issues of mental health related to deaths of despair. Then it goes through different things it can contribute to it and all the rest of it. Loneliness, isolation, which, so they know when you lock folk down, guess what, they get, they get lonely, eh? They get isolated, uh, a lack of belonging. Well, you can't meet anybody and, and mingle. Limited access to affordable health care. No kidding, you stay at home if you're sick. <laughs> System, uh, systemic racism, trauma, and financial concerns, like a lack of housing, food, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just wonderful when you when you give them a lockdown eh, and you watch it go up and up and up, causing it all to happen, folks. Eh? For something that most folk don't even know that they've had. Huh? And another one, stress on the virus response will destroy seven times more years of life. Another study with it, repeating the same stuff. But here's the happy news. that There's a happy news from your, from your lovely communists, you know, that are, are all happy to work for the elite who own you, you know, because you are owned, you understand. And that the real, truly left-wing elite are, the, are really just the managerial class for, and it's called socialists or communists, that manage you for the wealthy elite. The United Nations, you, you're getting fuzzy already when I'm saying it, you feel all warm on you. The New World Order... You, the UNNWO launches COVID-19 coronavirus-focused International Day of Happiness 2020 campaign theme called Happiness for All Together. Take the tears out of your eyes, and, 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 and I know you're all in ecstasy just hearing that there. So I'll repeat the last part, if you can handle it, right? <laughs> So the, the UNNWO, right? And, and by the way, that NWO is a new world order from the United Nations. I'll put that link up too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it says uh, COVID-19 coronavirus focused International Day of Happiness. I, I really feel like I'm back in the womb here, you know. 
just kicking my mum's belly there, you know. And uh, it's all fuzzy and warm and everything. International Day of Happiness 2020 campaign theme. Happiness for all together. Ah, isn't that that amazing, eh? Mm -mm -mm. This is the stuff they'd put in the comedies. I mean, but this is meant to be serious. This is the stuff the communists churn now, you know, they, 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 they'd, they'd have these, these, these events that they ought to be happy and come out and smile and everything, and, and uh, here, we, here we go from the United Nations, no wonder, eh? Uh, so it says, New York, responding to the unprecedented sudden threat of COVID-19 to the health, happiness, and well-being of all humanity as well as the worldwide quarantine and disruption to the global economy across every sector, industry, and the everyday life of billions of people, the United Nations International Day of Happiness, UNIDO, UNIDO, I-I-I-D-O. happiness is launching the Happiness for All Together, March 20th, 2020, International Day for Happiness. So there you go, we've already had it. I, I didn't even get my share of happiness, you know that? I didn't even know it was even happening. Uh, I wonder if they can they can claim it even in, you know after after the event maybe. So it says so it's a global campaign to promote and advance worldwide solidarity. There's that communist term solidarity and unity again, and winning the global fight against COVID nineteen coronavirus. Eh? Yeah, yeah. So it's a war. They always use wars, and we're all in it together. That's always the slogans in warfare. Eh? As those at the top take all your rights and freedoms and your food away from you, well, they stuff their faces at the top and celebrate with their champagne. It says the Happiness for All Together 2020 UN International Day campaign theme is a call on all 7.8 billion members of the global human family and all 206 nations and territories of planet Earth to unite in solidarity and steadfast resolve and fighting back against the COVID-19 coronavirus by by taking the 10 steps, it's like a 10-step program, to Global Happiness Challenge to celebrate the 2020 International Day of Happiness and ultimately defeating the COVID-19. See, all you, have to, all you need is happiness. Eh? All you need is happiness, buddy, dee-dee-dee-dee. And that's it, cured, right? Just be happy. Don't worry. Remember that stupid one too, that other stupid one? Don't worry, be happy. Eh? So there you go, that's your... I wonder how much it cost us all to pay for this nonsense. A few a few billion here probably as well, eh? But it goes on and on. It says, uh, happiness for all together, March 12th. And it says, it always seems impossible until it's done all these big, big agendas. Let us unite and work together to win this global fight and to achieve the happiness, well-being, freedom of all life on earth, said uh, Nadaba Mandela. UNAIDS Global Ambassador So we've got Global Ambassadors, you see Sounds very pompous, eh? Probably gold braid and everything and all that, eh? Co-founder of the United Nations New World Order Project That's what it's called here in the links here United Nations New World Order Project And Chairman of the Mandela Institute for Humanity I remember old Nelson Mandela He used to put a lot into humanity too Especially the children by Attacking school buses and things, but but now he's a hero. Now he's, it depends. He eventually become a hero, and it's okay now. It's wonderful. He wasn't a terrorist at all. I don't know where I don't know where that thought came from, but I have to put it in my head for goodness' sake and and, and rehabilitate myself. 
So it says here that, um, yeah, it goes on and on and on about collective global action of every individual organization and nation. Ten steps to global happiness. Wow. We'll get a, a seven-day virtual event uh, uniting 80 countries and thousands of experts and activists. You didn't know there had that many revolutionaries out there. Uh, at the intersection of happiness, well-being, education, health, technology, politics, economics, developments, and social impact amongst other fields and sectors. Wow. Yeah, eh? uh, just be happy. As your stomach's rumbling and you can't get food, just be happy, folks. Just be happy. Hmm? My, what, what trash is this, though, eh? What trash is this? It, it, it's so collectivist. It, it, they really see you like a bunch of children, eh? And, uh, and mind you, if you smile and show your teeth, they'll, they'll give you a little pat on the head for being good. But if, if you disagree with them, they're completely intolerant. That's the nature of the beasts, actually. And that's what you'll see. And uh, so the United Nations New World Order Project is a global high-level initiative. A high-level, eh? Again, back, I guess they'll join them on, in the snowy mountains up in Switzerland, the high-level. And it founded in 2008 to advance a new economic paradigm, a new political order, and more broadly, a new world order for humankind, which achieves the United Nations Global Goals for Sustainable Development by 2030 and the Happiness, Well-Being and Freedom of All Life on Earth by 2050. Oh, wow, eh? They call it happy-tellism. <laughs> I wonder how much that cost them at a marketing company, happy-tellism. But I'll repeat that for the harder thinking because it's kind of important that the United Nations New World Order Project is a global high-level initiative founded to advance a new economic paradigm. New economic paradigm. A new political order. Again, I'll say that. A new political order and more broadly, a new world order for humankind, which achieves the United Nations Global Goals for Sustainable Development by 2030 and the happiness, well-being, and freedom of all life on Earth by 2050. Uh, there's always a future utopia when you starve yourself to death. You're working for a better tomorrow, you understand. So here's a, a whole new system, folks. Get announced to you. It's a happy thing. It's happy, you see. And uh, a communist is the head of it. Someone who's, who, who, who's all part of the big communist family. And... Um, for the United Nations, eh? Do you vote for the United Nations? Of course you don't. You don't get to vote for the United Nations. You just get told what to do by them. Well, maybe it's time you, you told the United Nations where to go, eh? Huh? With its New World Order project, eh? And, and its new political system. And its new economic system. And a new world order, and so on. And it's... Global Goals for Sustainable Development. Maybe you should tell them where to go with it all, eh? What do you think about that? Tell them where to stuff it, and then you could be happy. Hmm? Because somebody has to. This is ter You're looking at tyranny, folks. I don't care how they try to dress it up for their, for their childish nonsense. The fact is, these are tyrants talking here. And the UN is completely staffed with communists on behalf of the elites at the top who own the world's cash system 
they use the communists and socialists to run it all in their socialistic fashion, you see. But if you're looking at hell, you won't be too happy with this, believe you me. Mm-mm-mm. Remember, sustainable development is, is no private vehicles. You'll have no travel. You'll have no darn rights. You'll be part of your community and you'll have to turn up at the community events for good socialists. If you don't turn up, you say, where were you? You're supposed to be there, says your commissar, you see. And then, of course, for, for you can't heat yourself with that. You've had your quota for heating fuel for the winter, etc., etc. That's what you're looking at here, folks. Mm-mm-mm. Nasty, nasty. So another, I've got two or three articles on the New World Order here for, from them <laughs> and uh, themselves, not made up about them, but from them. And the UN has got their website called New World Order. There you go. I'll put it all up, mind you, for, for, for you guys tonight. I do a lot of work for other people that just part my stuff for the rest of the week, but they never mention where they get it. <laughs> I do a lot of stuff for that, for nothing, that's obvious. This other article here, too. How they can sneak in things during these crises to familiarize you with other things to come, obviously. Now remember, Canada is sadly beyond socialistic, uh, and they call it progressive. We're so wonderful and caring, and we care about everybody, yada, yada, yada. But when you see troops getting used for civilian purposes, um, you've got to be very wary. I mean, troops are, are a blind force. Troops are supposed to be meant, they're meant they're, the whole job of being in the military is for combat. But Canada, being so socialistic and throwing money across the planet, money we don't have, is a ticket off us, of course, to throw it where they want it to go, often to their pals and corporations across the planet. Uh, that's what socialists always do, you know. And they do all their social, um, I call it preening. It's not just virtual, uh, virtue signaling. It's, it's actually preening. They pr- they, they, it's like it's like Trudeau comes on it, and he, he, I guess he was on makeup team or something because they, tr- they they try to make him look sexy for the women and stuff like. It's just sad uh, to me. That kind of thing's so sad, uh, and he tries to be uh, all things to all people, all, all, to all left wingers, all things to all left wingers. I should say, and uh, but in reality. Canada's a mess right now. It's been a mess going downhills ever since the free trade with China. We lost all our factories, just like at the U.S. and other countries did too. And millions got put out of work. You know. Millions of people. We're not all supposed to sit home and work on silly computers. We're really not meant for that, obviously. Same with universities. Universities are just a waste of time for most, most things today, really. For the ridiculous courses that they teach, and it's so expensive too. But it used to be stacks of people, millions of folk used to work in factories and and made things, and they're productive, and they enjoyed making things, and it gave them purpose, and uh, and uh, it gave them some pride in themselves for to, to to bring in a good income for themselves and so on. Purpose. We can't live without purpose, you know. And um, we personally need it ourselves. We've been a mess ever since, and uh, with the uh, Canada, like everything else too, has been selling off everything its, its healthcare systems quietly, bit by bit, to foreign, international 
chains. The healthcare industry now and hospital industry is like chains of hospitals, just like supermarkets. And the mess Canada is in with the old age homes and so on was also because there were the, the, the bids were put up for these homes to outside forces outside the country. They came in, took them over, and maximized the profits and don't give a damn about the patients. Um, I really mean that. And they hire the cheapest labor possible. And what happened with the massive panic during the terror campaign caused by the media, they were supposed to give us a terror campaign to get us all to believe it, you see. They terrified the public so much into abeyance that people would stop, stop going into the old folks' homes to the actual workers. And some of them deserted them, and, and I know they did that in Montreal, for instance, and elsewhere too. Just terrified the workers, who, who were not really medical staff. They were caretakers, but not medical staff as such. And they were terrified for their lives as well. They were given no protective gear. And a lot of them just didn't go in, and the folk were left in, in terrible conditions. Well... This is Canada. We we outsource everything and we sold everything off. Because we're so wonderful in Canada. We're so goody-goody to the whole planet now, you see. We're so communistic uh, that uh, things are becoming non-functional or dysfunctional. Facing an invisible enemy, Canadian troops lend a helping hand to seniors. So you've got people who are trained to go out and kill folk. This is how, 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 how desperate it is. Bring them in to help the seniors in the homes eh? And again it's a public relations thing as well naturally It's not the front line they signed up for Not even a deployment they prepared for But for some one and a half thousand Canadian military personnel Their mission now is helping care for elderly residents In long term term care homes hit by COVID-19 It's mainly by the effects of it And the staff getting better Defence Minister Harjit Sarjan Or Sarjan Concede Thursday that the deployment facilities in Ontario and Quebec is not a typical Canadian Armed Forces operation. They'll do what they can to help the healthcare providers and long-term facilities maintain the health and well-being of vulnerable Canadians, he says. But Canadians needed their service, and they have stepped up. So they brought some medical staff in, I suppose. And um, they deployed to the homes following requests from Quebec and Ontario for help staffing long-term care homes, which have become COVID-19 hot zones with widespread deaths and illnesses. Well, there's a lot more to the deaths and illnesses too, by the way, than they're telling you here, actually. And I tell you, things are so politically correct now that you can't even speak about truth anymore and get to the bottom to, to fix things, you know, just to fix things. I said before, we're so far gone now, we couldn't, we couldn't say what we have to say and do what we have to do to save ourselves. And that's literally what's happening. Yeah. So 1,000 troops deployed at 22 facilities in Quebec with 670 medical and support personnel working in the homes, while another 350 provide support, such as deliveries of protective equipment. The operation is expected to increase to 1,350 personnel and 25 homes in the coming days. Another thing, too, see, here's the thing, too, as you start to, to sell off, you start something up like, like um, your, your own healthcare systems, like Britain did. Now, Britain is the same. Britain was collapsing totally in its healthcare system, national health system, uh, for, for years. And last year, one of the biggest sales off the, the private sector was done in Britain, too. 
And it's the same thing's happening in Canada, naturally, to big American corporations. They're actually foreign-owned. It's not even American. Uh, they, can, they may have a place based in America, like, like an office, but they're often outside the country. But they're, they're buying up the hospital care of the planet. And things become dysfunctional as they cut and slash and burn. And they, they bring in, by the way, the bioethics teams, which they promote through universities. The big private corporations decide what's going to get taught. And out come the bioethicists who decide what, what life is worth, what your life is worth and not worth, and blah, blah, blah. Who's going to live and who's going to die, yada, yada. And this is where you end up with these kind of messes with the slash and burn techniques that they use. And they'll cut the, the staff and cut the staff until they've got people who literally have no care at all in the work that they're doing. And, uh, and you end up with a, with, a, with chaos. In some ways, this is related to the same international multicultural system of the United Nations and, and the global agenda of interdependence. It really is. When you're, you're not training people inside your country and you're bringing in the cheapest labor from outside the country to work in places, they have no interest. They often they can't speak the languages in the, in the places either. Britain's got an awful job with that as well. It's just astonishing how, how cheap, cheap, cheap they can do. The, the, so these, these places and hospitals are part of your infrastructure. These are essential for the community, for the people who live there and the nations. It's the same as selling off your resources, your, your necessary essential resources. You, you don't sell them off to foreign companies and then you fall out with them down the road and you can't get anything that you need. That's what happens with China right now. It's the same with your healthcare systems. You should never sell it off to international corporations who have nothing in common with the people or the nation that they're supposedly going to end up serving. I hate that word serving as they plunder your bank account and try to give the cheapest care possible for massive profit. You can't do that. Everything in the system is not profit. You've got to understand that too. And governments used to have to accept that there's a cost of run just like a business is a cost of running a business. Businesses today don't get they get taught in business school try to have no cost at all they would at all profit. And governments are just the same. Think all the money that they're taxing off is all all the time. And the money they're throwing abroad rather than spending it at home. And now you have to bring the military in to help out and and old age homes. And today, folk are scared to get old because they know about eugenics. They know that they're getting written off now with the hospitals. Well, why don't you just take this, take this pill, you know, and end it all? It's a lot cheaper than treating you. You might live in there 10 years if they treat you. You might even maybe even more. Why not do the right thing and just take this pill, you know, this little... You know, this is what they're, they're advocating in the hospitals here now. Why on earth would you, folk are terrified to get into the hospitals now, get written off if, you, if you're a nobody? And I really mean that. <laughs> they've, they've published it enough in the papers here. Yeah? Quebec, by the way, would have had so much of the problem with, with even the old age homes being deserted by the staff who, who are terrified. And again, a lot of them were sold off to foreign companies. At least people who brought come in from right from the countries and bought them up, and 
and and Quebec is is gung ho for all this. They they were at the top of the lead for euthanasia. They were the the first ones to really push it big time. And there's articles out there where the the rates going up and up and up. Who folk are just accepting their they're being convinced to to accept euthanasia for God's sake. You know, convinced they they have teams that try and convince you. They've got those got teams they fly all over the countries that try to convince relatives uh, that, that you should make sure the person's organs is, are left to, 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 to good use to get sold abroad or something. This is incredible what's happening. It's a horror show, for God's sake. As we really lost. This guff you got from the United Nations, the World Order thing, eh? About their happiness. We'll all be happy, happy. What guff? Get back to reality and outside of these marketing campaigns, and and see what's really happening here. It's a damned horror show. What's been happening and disgusting. Heads should be rolling for what's happening to the public here. Where it's all money and cents and dollars, and and then their bioethicists get churned out of universities, living off the taxpayers' purses, so as they can decide which taxpayers are going to get the chop when they go into hospital. Well, you know, you're old now. You're, you don't deserve to live anymore. And, and that's how they've been trained to look at you. Mm-hmm. But to get back to, to a nation, or, or even leave to go to other nations where there's still a, a value in human life. Eh? For everybody, not just for celebrities and so on. Eh? And another article in Canada's military exposes extremely troubling conditions in Ontario's long-term care homes. No, no kidding, eh? Mm-hmm. Cockroach infect infestations, residents left to wallow in soiled diapers. That happened when all the staff just fled the place in Montreal. COVID 19 patients allowed to wander around for uh, forceful feeding of the elderly, forceful feeding, and a culture of fear to use supplies because those cost money. Huh? See, they're up for high profit, high profit, high profit. So don't use the supplies. You these are some of the horrifying findings uncovered by Canadian Armed Forces personnel dispatched to help in five Ontario nursing homes during the coronavirus pandemic. In a searing 23-page military report by Brigadier General Conrad uh, Mikowski made public Tuesday, Ontario's troubled long-term care system where 1,538 residents and six staff members have died of COVID-19 is laid bare. Uh, of course, Trudeau expressed outrage, all, all that nonsense, are you sure? He was sad and shocked and disappointed, and he was angry, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess they just noticed these things, like it's just happening now, eh? <laughs> they, had, they weren't caring a damn about before all this, this hit. And it says, um, and then Ford from Ontario, uh, Ford was visibly upset as he spoke with reporters, you know, sure, sure, sure. And so, the, again, we're getting an independent, com- one of these endless commissions that Canada's famous for to examine the long-term care crisis uh, and get a full public inquiry, in it, which, of course, will go nowhere because a lot of the folk who own these big, these, these homes, these chains in, in, in the medical system are important. For, they're very wealthy, and, and they, they back the politicians, you know, when they run for office. And you know that. You know how this system is so corrupt. That's how it works, folks. Huh? Huh? So anyway, as I say, this is what they give you. I can remember when, when Obama was running for office, and he said in his talk uh, that uh, 
he mentioned, he kept using the example of his grandmother, and was it really right that we spent so much money keeping her alive and so on? And he was he was talking about euthanasia. I was pushing for that. The left wing are, are they're all for for euthanasia. That there's no religion, no God, no no nothing, and and human life, just like uh, Julian Huxley said, they'd have to do has been put off of the pedestal and brought down to the level of the animal. And usefulness and non-usefulness and and that's what you're all getting taught and money rules and corporations that own all these chains and chains of nursing homes and they rule and they own the hospitals too and they've been privatizing big chunks and chunks and chunks of the hospitals for a long long time in Britain and elsewhere as I say and the Britain just sold one of the biggest sell-offs and privatized it last year in fact so now they're making them all these temporary superstars to all the PR nonsense. That's all fiction, people. The reality is I'll go back to where it was again. Because the, the agenda, same in Canada, is to sell them all off to, the, 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 to, to these very expensive, uh, uh, <laughs> what do you call They're tycoons that own chains of hospitals across the globe. And that's a fact. That's what they're doing here. Our life is becoming nothing. And and we, we unless we are productive, they 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 don't see us as anything except just 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 a purse until the purse is empty. That's that's what we're seeing. That's what life is now in this system. And another article statement from the SEIU healthcare president Charlene Stewart on disturbing revelations from long-term care by the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, there's nothing disturbing about it. It's what was expected, really, because it's been going down the tubes for the last 25, 30 years, apparently. All the deaths, too, are through, most, a lot of them are through neglect, folks. There's no doubt about it. And the, again, the complete chaos to do with who should get into hospital in this day and age. And in a system, in Ontario especially, and, and, and in Quebec, in a system, as I say, that's run by eugenics. Uh, that's run, as I say, uh, according to the age that you are, regardless of how ill or or, or, or well you are, uh, if they're going to let you in the hospital or not, or if they're going to even treat you. This, this is completely dollar and cents now, folks. I've given talks on this. It's disgusting how we're all labelled as to our value and to society or non-value. And and if you even get into hospital now and get treatment, they're not going to... I even read the articles that they came out with when the COVID hit and says, well, we'll have to decide now who we're going to treat and not treat, you know. Dollars and cents, yada, yada, yada. Ah, that's what's wrong with our system. And it can only get worse in a communist socialist system run by supposed professionals and experts, you see. Mm-mm-mm. And Ontario takes over five long-term care homes and extends emergency orders to June the 9th. <laughs> There's how good we're doing in Canada right now. Eh? Uh, quite amazing. And here's the thing, too. In their article, Como in New York gave immunity to nursing home executives after big campaign donations were dished out. Hmm. The critics say the data proves that New York's liability shield is linked to higher nursing home death rates during the pandemic. <laughs> As Governor Andrew Cuomo faced a spirited uh, challenge in his bid to win New York's 2018 Democratic primary, his political apparatus got a last-minute boost. A powerful healthcare industry group suddenly poured more than $1 million into Democrat committee backing his campaign. Well, it's just coincidence, folks. Got nothing to do with it. I mean, he wouldn't let that interfere with his work and so on. 
and his decision-making. What's interesting, too, you've seen, come on, you've got to stop being so naive. You stop making excuses for for people who are in charge of things. You know what you would do if you're in charge of certain things, but you always make excuses when when they do the wrong things at the top. Think, well, I guess they've made big mistakes. Stop doing it. You've watched and you've read the articles. You've even heard Burks, Dr. Burks, give her talks here about about how they're they're basically putting everybody down who who might have COVID as a COVID death. And and, and they might not have it, no matter what they die of, heart giving up or whatever, or kidneys packing in, or people with chronic, chronic illnesses who are dying being put down as COVID deaths, even when they haven't been tested and so on. It makes no They've padded and padded to get the numbers up and up and up. And, and you've all seen it. You've seen the articles. These are verifiable articles, folks. Not not from conspiracy theorists, eh? But then you saw Como ordering the old age homes to take in active cases, people who, who have tested positive, and put them in old folks' homes. I mean... Do you think he's just stupid? You, you, you just, oh, I guess the man's just stupid, eh? You put them to the old folks' homes and you, you, you order the homes to take them in regardless or you charge them. And they take them in and then it spreads right through the home and they die. Do you really think that's just incompetence? No, that's deliberate. They pad the numbers. Because they don't care about the lives that are getting lost. They don't. Really, these are politicians, eh? These are people who score high on the psychopathic score testing. That's who go into politics, these kind of people. Hmm? So, a million dollars back to his campaign last year, eh? Hmm? Less than two years after that flood of cash from the Greater New York Hospital Association, Como signed legislation last month quietly shielding hospital and nursing home executives from the threat of lawsuits stemming from the coronavirus outbreak. Well, that's nice of them. It is great, though, how, how birds of a feather, a crooked feather, really do stick together, isn't it? I mean, they do look after each other, don't they? So you've got to admit it, they, they, they do look at, gangs look after gang members. I, I have noticed that. And their article, Focus on the COVID-19 Death Rate. Hmm? This is the most frightening aspect of the coronavirus 19 epidemic in the U.S. is that it brought about exaggeratedly heightened fear of death. That fear, once magnified to proportions which became palpable to the individual, became the basis for dreadful economic and medical policies from governments that, and crushed the, nat- the natural optimism of the public. But don't worry, I mean, the U.N.'s making up with its New World Order Happiness Day and all that. In early days, we were caught up in a squeeze of conflicting information. Was the COVID-19 a bioweapon gone rogue and destined to indiscriminately wipe out young or old? Or was it another bad flu or perhaps an extremely bad flu? After all, initial information showed the victims were concentrated in a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. No cases were reported among the homeless on West Coast streets. No deaths among children were reported. In the closed world of cruise liners and later a military ship, there were lots of early cases and some deaths. 
As time passed, there was little more bad news. We should have been suspicious of the data. We were mainly focused on the case fatality rate, CFR, the this as a percentage of diagnosed cases, which were frighteningly high. We worried about the infection fatality rate, but there was too little data and testing available to have any idea how many people were actually going to be infected. But says, these, these concepts, the CFR and the IFR, are not the most important strategic measures of the severity of the disease. It is the death rate properly defined and understood that should matter for long-term policy makers or erstwhile more level-headed thinkers in determining policy. In the past few weeks, we've obtained more useful data in the U.S. There were secrets lurking in the data waiting to be uncovered that could help ascertain what was really happening. The purpose of this report was to do just that, to ascertain what the data are telling us and give us the basis for judging the appropriateness of past and and, uh, present policies. So they go into the definitions in the epidemiological world, such as the CFR and IFR mentioned above. The focus is on the overall death rate, and we don't even have accurate data on how many people have died from COVID-19 alone versus COVID-19 plus some other complications that are already present, such as diabetes, morbid obesity, and prior respiratory complications, any one of which might equally have become have been the, the proximate cause of death. There's ample evidence, especially in the Northeast region, there's been overclassification, a euphemism for data bias, meaning lying, fudging. <laughs> That's what it means, folks. Um, because, yeah, we've had them all admitting, did they put them all down as COVID? They even sent, uh, the AMA sent out um, forms to doctors showing them what, how to fill them in, regardless of what they really were going to put them down as the causes of death. But put them down as causes of death anyway is, and also you you had uh, them. Uh, eventually, they gave up even testing, and said even if they suspected that the symptoms or may have had the symptoms, put it down as definite. So they've, they've padded the numbers. And, and by the way, can you find the flu cases? For, you can't find flu cases for the year because I've lumped them all in as well. Try try to find how many folk have been diagnosed with the flu this year. You won't find it. This has been an amazing padding job to, to boost numbers. Uh, I, I'm not saying it hasn't ki- it has killed people, but 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 they've lumped in all the other deaths too from other things like like the flu, and as I say, we've got comorbidities already, existing morbidities. It's just understand how our minds have been misdirected in understanding the real risks associated with COVID-19. Let's begin with a brain teaser. It'll awaken our, our numerate uh, minds in preparation for understanding the data deception and misunderstandings that prevail. When is 1.7% greater than 98.3%? In the bizarre world of COVID-19 reported, that is the case. 1.7% is greater than 98.3% specifically deaths amongst a narrow 1.7 group of the population are greater than the deaths from the other 98.3. Numerically, a death may be a death, but from a policy point of view, to be blunt about it, not all deaths are the same. Fact number one, 1.7% of the population in the U.S. reside in long-term medical care facilities. See? And the total is 5.7 million. Fact two, the residents of the LTMCFs, right, long-term care missiles, account for 38,800 or 53% of all COVID-19 deaths. It's mainly old folks' homes. 
based on recent data, the rest of the country, the 98.3% have experienced approximately 34,600 deaths, or 47% of the nation's total COVID-19 deaths. The death rate at the LTMCFs is stunning. That means the death rate deaths expressed as a percent of those living in the medical care institutions is 0.682% more than 50 times the death rate of the rest of the population at 0.012%. The death rate for the overall populations is 0.022%. That should should leave you speechless. We have a COVID-19 problem, but we have an even greater and more serious long-term medical care facility problem that is clouding our understanding of the contagion and therefore what our best public health policy should be. Shutting down the economy, the world wherein 98.3% live and prosper was too draconian. The feared overloading of the hospital system with emergency patients, which was short-lived, was disproportionately coming from the residents of long-term medical care facilities, not the general public. That's what I've said before. They've locked down the vast majority of the healthy people. First time in history, 98.3% <laughs> locked down. But pretty well, so many of the deaths have been long care medical. So, and by the way, I wouldn't stop there because there's more to this than meets the eye. There really is more to it. And I know that the top, they've seen it, what I've seen, they have to have seen it. But they won't go there because it's it's so dangerous to even go into it. And I really mean that. It's very dangerous to go into it. Mm-mm-mm. I'll touch on it before I'm finished. On it. By the way, remember, folks, you can help me take along by going into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. That's my main website. But I have all the other sites. They're all really main sites of mine. But they're all listed on the com site. And you'll see how to donate to me, how to do it. You can send cash or a check or use PayPal and other, there's other methods too. And uh, how to get it to me. And my email's here too. You always get, you always email me. It's alanwattcuttingthrough at yahoo.com if you ever have to email me. You'll see the link on the, on my website. But again, list all my my official sites, which are on the com website, in case anything goes down. Because the, the, the people who are running the world right now, e- even if this thing disappeared tonight and you never hear COVID again, they're not going to stop the agenda. Every part of the agenda puts them another two miles ahead, another five miles ahead, another hundred miles ahead, or a hundred years ahead, folks. They're not going to backtrack on it. Now, this is... This is a perpetual monitoring system for life, including where you can travel, can you travel, will you be allowed to travel, even drive or even walk outside your own area eventually. This is where they want to go with it all, track and trace and monitoring. They're owned and you'll be subject to all these big corporations that have all your data on you and who've been assigned all the new responsibilities of, of deciding how where you can go and where you can't go and should you go at all or should you stay in your home, yada, 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 because you didn't take your, your, your latest chickenpox vaccine or whoever the, whatever it happens to be because this is a mandate for every... You're going to be a pin cushion for everything they've ever des- designed and stuff they haven't come up with yet. Yes, you are, because you are profitable. 
If you have no other, other purpose, you, you're going to be prof- profitable for that, folks. No kidding you. But you have to understand what was happening in old folks' homes and um, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, remember? How so many of the deaths have come from the, the old folks' homes and long, long-term uh, health care homes as well, they call them, some of them. And you have to get, and that's very important. That is why, why, why. Hmm? I, I gave talks years ago, and I and I said I've, I've noticed. I keep noticing that the flu every year was always breaking out in old folks' homes, and I, I did I read reports that studies have been done on them. Because initially they would say, well, it must be visitors bringing in the flu into the old folks' homes. But then they said, no, they found that some of them were breaking out in the homes and traveling with visitors outside into the community. <laughs> Very important little thing, you know. Because I'll be mentioning that in a, wee, a little while. Uh, let me see now. Is mandatory vaccination legal in time of epidemic? Of course. And here they go with the usual legalities, trying to, 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 to take away rights and so on through legalities and, and much speaking, as I call it, much speaking. And uh, this article goes into should they or shouldn't they or should they have rights to mandate that you take these and so on and so on. And the 14th Amendment asserts that no state shall make or enforce any law uh, abridging that privilege or immunities of citizens of the United States or deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. I love how they do George Orwell mentioned it in Animal Farm, where the pigs, of course, who were in charge, they were the bureaucratic class uh, for the animals after the rebellion. And the pigs had written their constitution down, you see, in their Bill of Rights and, and on the wall. And then, of course... Um, some of the animals noticed in the middle of the night there, if they weren't quite sleeping, the pigs would sneak in there and put a ladder up on the wall and go up there with paint. And um, they didn't just score things out. What they did is add little amendments to the ends of sentences. So I'll, I'll say this part again here, because it's, it's what, what we're talking about. So... so it says that the law abridging the privileges or, or immunities of citizens of the United States or deprive any person of life, liberty, or property. And then, and then pretty well in quotation marks, in a way, for, for the purpose of this talk, without due process of the law. It's like that's been added on. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Just like the pig did, in a sense. Because the whole point of it is is to safeguard you. You don't need without due process of the law, which negates the whole purpose of it. You understand? I mean, it can be done. What's the point in writing the first part if you're going to negate it with the latter part? Huh? So it's uh, that's how it's done. That's what's done. But Jefferson talked about this too, this very thing too. So then they come up again with, oh, 1905, Supreme Court addressed mandatory vaccinations regarding smallpox and Jacobson versus Massachusetts, yada, yada, yada. And that's how they go on and take your rights away by confounding the people who listen uh, without going into the fact, too, of what were, the, what were the actual results of the vaccination programs that were on the go at that time. You know, you had bigger plagues when they had the vaccinations out. This is in the history books. It's quite amazing what you can dig up, in fact. Uh, And nothing's ever exactly as it seems, eh?
how many trillions they dished out so far to make, keep folks staying at home and to, to keep Wall Street afloat? How many trillions have they tossed all over the place? Even billions to some of the big uh, foundations uh, and the private uh, advocacy groups inside America got, mad, got billions given to them. Some of the ones that are actually censoring the media. <laughs> uh, I tell you. Here again, you understand, in a crisis, it's a great opportunity time for, for making billions when governments are panicking, throwing cash all over the place. Eh? Yeah, money that won't even be asked to get paid back by the companies. These are like cash grants, just, just like presents. Eh? And uh, it's a great time for these these guys, because this is a type of war, and, and that's where you, when you make the money. That's what Rothschild said, too. He says uh, the best time to make money is when blood's ro- running in the streets, when folk are panicking and they need what you've got. You, you, a bandage, you can jack it up 100%, you know, or 1,000, 1,000%, they'll, they'll buy it. But it says here that media ignores Israel connection to Eric Schmidt's push for New York smart cities. In recent weeks, considerable media attention has been given to the decision by New York Governor Como to tap former Google executive Eric Schmidt to lead a 15-member panel tasked with regaining New York's post-pandemic tech infrastructure as well as its education, economic and healthcare system. Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates was also recruited for the, the initiative by Governor Como leading some American media outlets to criticize the venture as turning New York into Silicon Valley science experiment. It's a small world. It's the same names that keep popping up everywhere, isn't it? The gang, the type that Jefferson would talk about. However, it's much more than merely a Silicon Valley experiment. As the last American vagabond report last month, Schmidt currently chairs the National Security Commission on artificial intelligence. So he's charged the commission in NSCAI, it's called, which discussed plans to, in last May regarding how to remake American society. This is important, actually, because I've read articles about it too. To remake American society to foster the mass adoption of artificial intelligence-driven technologies, including so-called smart cities and related systems of mass surveillance. That commission includes key people not just from Silicon Valley, but also the U.S. military and intelligence communities, a testament to how the divisions between the big tech, the Pentagon, and the U.S. intelligence have become increasingly blurred in recent years. It's been longer than just recent years, I'm afraid. And it says, um, unsurprisingly, one of the main initiatives from the Schmidt uh, Chaired New York panel is set to promote as the fast tracking of smart city implementation, as outlined by the Schmidt chaired NSCAI. These are the term reimagining. I first saw it when Bill Gates used it because he wanted to reimagine uh, uh, education, where through his systems and his program, and of course his education system, uh, they would bring up the children. Uh, without the use of schools, using this pandemic as the prototype system to test it out on, you see. Reimagining education. So this is reimagining an announcement that Schmidt would chair this panel. Also underscores the point, given that Google's smart city subsidiary Sidewalk Labs describes itself as reimagining cities from the internet up. Smart cities are more accurately defined as cities 
that are micromanaged by technocrats via an all-encompassing system of mass surveillance and a vast array of Internet of Things, devices that provide a constant and massive stream of data that is analysed by artificial intelligence. It's your electronic prison system, folks, a hell on earth. That's what it is. That's what it is. This article goes on to say that notably Como's appointment of Schmidt to lead the panel aimed at reimagining life in New York <laughs> came right before news broke that a Google subsidiary was scrapping its plans to build a smart city prototype in Toronto. Schmidt still chaired Google's parent company Alphabet when that deal was first negotiated in 2017. At the time, Schmidt had said that Google's effort to turn Toronto into a smart city had come from Google founders getting excited, thinking of all the uh, things you could do if someone would just give us a city and put us in charge. It's true, they want us to pay for all in their public-private partnerships, but the public pay for it all and its upkeep and maintenance, and they just take the profit and manage it all, you see. Though smart cities have been largely unpopular among Americans to date, the coronavirus crisis has led to a spate of positive public relations pieces promoting their implementation. Well, we've got to get it in. You save us all. got to save us all. So this is a recent piece in Wired which claimed that smart city planning could slow future pandemics. And an article from Forbes, well, just, just make prison camps and throw them in. That's, fast. That's dual fast. There you go. That'd be cheaper too, yeah. But they were rather obvious what they were then. Eh? They don't want it to be so obvious. And an article from Forbes about how smart cities are protecting against coronavirus. No kidding you. What rubbish is this, eh? Well, the current coronavirus crisis in Schmidt increasingly public role in ushering in artificial driven technological solutions throughout New York have given a boost to the smart city agenda. The plan to create these cities in New York was in the works well before coronavirus. However, those pre-pandemic smart city plans intimately involved one key actor that has thus far gone unnamed in recent media reports, the State of Israel, because <laughs> that's part of their big agenda and technology is one of their sales things, who will build New York smart cities. And so Como announced a two million partnership agreement with the Israel Innovation Authority, a branch of Israel's economic, uh, economy ministry that aims to further strengthen economic development ties between New York State and Israel. The agreement was specifically related to the co-development and commercialization for technologies related to the smart cities, cybersecurity and drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, amongst others. Everything that, that Israel's producing, actually, they're big in, in the production of drones, for instance. A key component of the partnership was the creation of the Smart Cities Innovation Partnership, called SCIP, which Comer's office describes as a new initiative that will share innovative technologies, research, talent, and business resources between the cities of New York and Israel. Also stated that New York and Israel will contribute an equivalent amount of matching resources to the project. Como at the time also said that New York's incubator program for startups, an initiative with funds exceeding $5 million, would implement a new focus on Israel companies as opposed to local companies. And uh, regarding the new Smart Cities Innovation Partnership, Dr. Annie uh, Applebaum, Chairman of the Israel Innovation Authority and Chief Scientist of Israel's Economy Ministry stated the following, As technology advances and touches every facet of our daily lives, the future of smart cities is just around the corner and highly depends to new and innovative technologies. 
This collaboration between the ESD, Empire State Development of New York State, and the Israel Innovation Authority, facilitated by American Operations Desk and Ministry of Economy, Foreign Trade and Administration, headed by Mr. Enon Elroy, Economic Minister to North America, will provide startups an opportunity for pilot validation sites to address the strategic concerns of both states such as cybersecurity, supply chain, energy, health, transportation, wastewater, water, civic encouragement, parks, public works, and safety. I hope folk are realizing that everything that's to do with anything that involves you or where you live or what you need is going to be run by these corporations from abroad and so on, from all over the planet. I mean, even our taxes are often, if I can, I think they're still done uh, over in uh, in India. For years it's been done in India. The government sends it over there. Everything's outsourced. What's the point in having government if they outsource it all, you know? And, uh, and, and how can you have any privacy when they're also having breaches in these countries <laughs> because there's the, 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 so many of the countries are still very, very corrupt and easy to hack into by by willing uh, people who are helping them. But again, uh, you understand that all these, these these things used to be basic essentials. A lot of the other stuff is basic essentials, so it's keeping like infrastructure for keeping the system going. And, and suddenly they're breaking them down into into more lucrative different areas and selling them abroad, having companies abroad own them all, right? They have nothing. It's, it's like the United Nations. Once you sign on to the United Nations, they don't see you as, as so and so that lives in the country of so and so. They see your country if it's lucrative as, as a cash source. That's what that's what you're. That's for taking cash from you, huh? The whole point of having a nation was folk in the nation should run this stuff, and literally, uh, it's, it's the only way you can have them. Uh, Stand for what for the actions they take. You can put them. You can put them on the stand. They're in your country. They've got responsibilities to the people in the country, and and you hold them to it. When when it's these faceless corporations across the planet, they got nothing in common with you. Who going to complain to? Can't do it. This is the con that's going on here. You can't sell off your infrastructure. You can't do it. And you shouldn't be going into this this over over. It's, it's just. This is a massive prison camp, the way, the, the way they're building it up here. It really is. So you, you, you won't be able to go anywhere on the planet and get any peace and quiet. That's what George Orwell had in 1984 when he tried to write a diary because everywhere he went there was cameras watching everything he did. He had to get a little quiet little corner of a room that the camera quite couldn't quite see him just to write his little secret, secret notebook, his daily diary. We won't even have that luxury. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, since the partnerships call for the establishment of five smart cities and regional economic development councils, uh, regions like New York that would interact with test bed sites created in Israel, means that this smart city partnership only involves the creation of smart cities in New York, not Israel, but gives Israeli companies a major role in designing these five New York smart cities. Business, business, business. Eh? Yeah. Because on and on, and, and, and put a long article actually, 
Uh, and goes into, into depth, lots of links to it too, to, to prove uh, her points there. And talks about Israel's government and intelligence services. There's a long history of aggressively spying on the U.S. federal government. And it shows you that too. They found all those different things last last year, wasn't it, around the White House? They were grabbing all the cell phone calls by politicians for the White House and so on. In addition, Israel's government under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has an explicit policy of creating U.S. dependence on Israeli tech companies in order to counter the nonviolent boycott and so on. What is interesting, I've read articles by Netanyahu himself, and he's, again, he's a salesman for his country. And uh, he, he, he always gives them positive feedback on, on deals with, with outside, especially the U.S. is most, uh, uh, probably the wealthiest nation that, that that's in, it's gives them lots of business. But he says that, that they, they, they're helping to lead in technolo- the technological field and uh, providing all the different stuff that they're going to make essential. See, you, you must make the business. You, you, they make it essential. They only do that when they've got the actual product that they, they're going to make it essential for you to buy. <laughs> That's how business works. And uh, and there you go. Yeah. But everything is really... Uh, I see everything as a big gang, you know, a big gang that runs stuff, and uh, the politicians are all on board with uh, they, they get well paid for their conniving, you know. I'm not, I'm not time for a politi- I really don't have time for politicians. They, they are definitely psychopathic. Do, do you realize the hell we're in, in in the earth long before the COVID idea came along? Uh, do you realize how the standard of living we should all be living in if politics was real and they had your best interests at heart? Uh, you wouldn't have drugged out camp cities, tent cities across the, the country in massive unemployment. It just wouldn't have. Had, you wouldn't have had all your all your work exported off to China. You would have had booming industries, including technological. You know, uh, like the German systems, would have trade schools. If you had lots of factories on the go for manufacturing and so on, people would have would have function and purpose and have some pride in themselves. If politics worked, politics doesn't. It's not meant to work for you. It never was meant to work for you. You've been running with a gang at the very top, a very secretive organisation running over the over these these under the guises or, or over the guises of democracy, <laughs> running the whole system. And so, and they boast about it, like the Council on Foreign Relations, and quickly boasted about it for them, since he was one of their historians for a while, with their private histories of how they shaped the world and planned the future for their private organisation. Eh? Another one too. I mentioned this one before, and other folk luckily grabbed it and so on. And, and it has got out there as the information travels because it's, it's too it's too important just to gloss over. Greg G. Wolf, an epidemiologist with the Armed Forces Health Surveillance Branch, know that their own health surveillance branch in the Armed Forces of the U.S. They got to have it because you got to be ahead of the curve if there is going to be any kind of sickness coming through the world. If you've got an army. 
this, if something's going to knock your army out, so you might be way ahead of everything and, and pick up on anything at the very beginning, right? So their own, so the U.S. Army's got its own health surveillance and like an intelligence branch, you know? and they published a study in the Journal of Vaccine, entitled uh, "It's titled Influenza Vaccination and Respiratory Virus Interference Amongst Department of Defense Personnel During the 2017 to 2018 Influenza Season." The study examined virus interference in the Department of Defense population. Refers to increased risk of other respiratory viruses as a result of, in this case, the influenza vaccine. And I'll get I'll go into this in more detail, but briefly here, what they're warning about is that the shots that they were giving for flu, for instance, and this was verified in Canada did it too a few years ago when they suddenly came out in the Canadian Health Authority, warning folk not to take the flu shot halfway through the flu season, mind you, uh, the short season. Because they found that the folk who got the flu shot, when they, when they hit natural flu, uh, they had a massive response, an immunological response to it, over, over-exaggerated response to the actual flu itself when, when it hit them. And it opened them up to, having, to actually catching uh, the flu was prevalent that year. Uh, the way more prevalent, uh, about 36% higher risk of contracting it, I think it was, than folk who had no vaccination. But it was even worse than that because they've got virus interference. Initially, if you got, if you got say, a jab for the flu, they, they'll always report that, oh, it's wonderful. You get, initially, you'll get a, a, a good antibody response to it. You'll show you an antibody. But the thing is, once you hit an actual virus, in the, in the wild, as they call it, in the studies, you get a massive over-response of cytokine storm, and that's what can end up killing you. This has been well known for years, actually, years and years, when you go into the, into the actual laboratory studies that are published in their own publications. Eh? This is the military doing this one, right? So this is... Um, they found that virus interference varied amongst vaccinated individuals for individual respiratory viruses... And found that for coronaviruses in particular, in the study, those who had been vaccinated with the flu vaccine right, had a 36% higher risk of contracting it. And I've read this quite a few times over the last month or more because it's awfully important to understand what they're saying here. If, you, if you're getting a flu shot, it can open you up to be susceptible to the coronaviruses in particular. Other kinds, right? Now keep that in your mind as I go on with this, because it says the study compared the vaccination status of more than 2,000 people with non-influenza respiratory viruses. And there's many other non-influenza respiratory viruses, remember, to more than 3,000 people with pan-negative results. The vaccination status of more than 3,000 cases of influenza were compared to three different control groups and appropriate adjustments were made. The study points out that recently published studies have described the phenomenon of vaccine-associated virus interference. That is, vaccinated individuals may be at increased risk for other respiratory viruses because they do not receive the non-specific immunity associated with natural infection. Right? The study is on to emphasize that there's been limited evidence that the influence of vaccine may actually be associated with the virus interference process. Other studies have found no association with influenza vaccination increased respiratory virus risk. 
But what they're looking at here, the study says Wolf study found that vaccine-derived virus interference was significantly associated with coronavirus and human metapneumovirus. Now, think about that, to what I said earlier. The, the largest casualty rate for death has been in the old folks' homes, where it's pretty well mandatory to take the flu shots. And this is, this is just a, a way of looking at something, and I'm sure, I'm sure the studies are, are already on the go for all this kind of stuff. It has to be, but I very much doubt if it'll ever be admitted to because there'll be such an incredible outcry if, if this is the case, folks, isn't it? Wouldn't it? Don't you think so? Think about that. There's, there's no way that they could, they could ever come out. The, the, the lawsuits would be so, the, the countries would collapse. And the ones at the top that are pushing all this stuff would certainly be, if that's the case, they were talking about the ifs here, right? Just, for, just to, to be legal here, <laughs> the ifs of it all. But think about that, eh? Think about it. Here's another one. Virus-associated immunopathology, right? Uh, animal models and implications for human disease. is another article. And it says that the, the tissue damage caused by virus infection has been traditionally explained by the ability of viruses to multiply in cells and thereby injure or destroy them. Recent evidence suggests however, that lesions may also be caused by the host's immune response to viral antigens and that the immune system itself may be perturbed by some viruses. Memorandum reviews recent developments in viral immunopathology with special references to animal model systems and indicates the possible relevance of the new concepts and techniques for certain diseases of man. Certain viruses, notably the leukemia viruses and some of those causing persistent infections, depress the host's ability to mount an antibody response to antigens, while other viruses may enhance the antibody response. Cell-mediated immunity may also be depressed. Another immunopathological manifestation of virus infection is immune complex disease, where viruses or other antigens persist in circulation. They combine with specific antibodies, and the resulting complexes lodge in various sites, especially the kidney. Further combination with complement leads to the release of tissue-damaging substances. A third condition associated with virus infection is antibody-mediated immunologic injury. Both oncogenic and uh, non-oncogenic viruses frequently induce new antigens on the surface of the cells they invade. When antibodies attach to these antigens in the presence of uh, complements, the cells are destroyed. It's got a full text here for the whole thing for folk who... I like to go through all this stuff. It's quite interesting. That's from the PMC, National Institute of Health. And it's um, it's an interesting study, actually, when you go into the, the deeper one. You can download their PDF for it as well. Another thing, too, is that they're going to all get, get their hands out and hope and get billions and become rich billionaires individually some of these characters in the laboratories for the vaccine companies. Coronavirus disappearing so fast, says Oxford vaccine, uh, that's where they try to make it in Oxford, has only 50% chance of working. Professor Adrian Hill describes the efforts to create a vaccine as a race against the virus disappearing and against, against time. Because um, the, the, the curve's over, you see. It says, 
The University of Oxford General Institute and Oxford Vaccine Group began developing COVID-19 vaccination in January using a virus taken from chimpanzees. But with a number of UK coronaviruses cases dropping every day, there may not be enough people left to test it, according to Institute's Director Professor Adrian Hill. He told the Sunday Telegraph's release against the virus disappearing and against time. We said earlier in the year that there was an 80% chance of developing an effective vaccine by September. But that, that's amazing because it would be the first time in history that would happen. But at the, the moment, there's a 50% chance uh, that we get no result at all. We're in the bizarre position of wanting COVID <laughs> wanting COVID to stay at least for a little while longer. That's what he's on about. So uh, there you go. You know. And I mentioned last week too, the flu vaccine uh, grown in dog kidney cells is another failure. A cell-based flu vaccine uh, called FluCellVax grown in dog kidney cells became available during the 2017 to 2018 flu season, right? Which again is awfully important. It became available during the 2017. That's the same year that the military noticed that folk were coming down and getting opened up to. It's actually making them um, more prone to other non-flu uh, viruses, and it was making them more prone to, to coronaviruses, different different types of coronaviruses, I should say. Uh, but those ones are grown on a dog, right? Now, don't forget, I mentioned last week too that on their dog kidney cells, they, they, that was <laughs> the, the, the manufacturers will say, well, there's debris, there's, there's actual debris, excess debris, meaning, meaning from other things that they're growing from on the kidney cells. And, and dogs have coronaviruses, different kinds, in their body, you see. They can, be, they can be harmless, they might be dangerous if they're put into humans, but they have them in their bodies. They're animals, zoonotic. Uh, Diseases you see tra- transfer from humans to animals and vice versa. That's what it means. So uh, before they used to make most of the vaccines were using hens' eggs, and uh, but when you start to put them on, on tissue of, of animals, then you start to pick up other what they call them often carrier viruses or, or you know often harmless carrier viruses. That's what they called it even with the polio vaccine. And we know what then we end up getting chimp cancer cells in the simian virus 40 and <laughs> put into the vaccine. But anyway, that's another story. But um, this one here it goes on to talk about the, the dog kidney cells uh, that they were testing then. This is it was another failure. Uh, as the conve- effectiveness of conventional flu shots can easily, leaves much to be des- desired, the new uh, flu cell vaccine was touted as a new and improved version that would protect more people once the season hit. The reality study by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration shows that the shot worked only a little bit better than the conventional flu shot in protecting seniors, which isn't saying much. But while flu vaccines overall had only 24% effectiveness in preventing flu-related hospitalizations. And it goes on and on and on for those who, who again, want to, to read how it's done. But really, it says, that it said, a mutation in the flu vaccine strain that produced antibodies that didn't work well to neutralize the H3N2 virus circulating in that particular year. These studies highlight the challenges associated with producing influenza vaccine antigens in eggs. No, no. However, the fact is, as I say, it made folk more prone to catching a, a coronavirus type uh, that's probably the year two, one of the years that that they recalls and stopped folk from taking the shots. 
halfway through the season. I want to touch on, this is important, it goes with uh, when I mentioned about the, the elderly folk in the nursing homes and they have to take the shots. A lot of the staff do too, remember. That's important as well, folks. It's pretty mandatory for the staff to get the shots as well in the hospitals too. This article here kind of backs it up too. And this here is from Elsevier, um, uh, the journal of, uh, of translational autoimmunity. It's one of the big ones. And um, not a conspiracy site, but it's a scientific site that deals in, with vaccines and so on. This is important. Now, I'll put the link up, too, for those that want to, to go through it and, and wade through it. Homology between human and viral proteins is an established factor in viral or vaccine-induced autoimmunity. Okay? Vaccine-induced autoimmunity. Failure of SARS, the SARS coronavirus, and the MERS coronavirus vaccines in animal trials involved pathogenesis consistent with an Immunological priming, this is important, they call it immunological priming that could involve autoimmunity in lung tissue, right? Due to previous exposure to the SARS and MERS spike protein. Exposure pathogenesis to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 likely will lead to similar outcomes. Autoimmunogenic uh, peptides and viruses or bacteria that match human proteins are good candidates for pathogenic priming peptides, similar to the more diffuse idea of immune enhancement. It says here, provide an assessment of potential for human pathogenesis via autoimmunity via exposure, via infection or injection, SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins and all other SARS-CoV-2 proteins. Um, Immunogenic uh, uh, epitopes in each SARS-CoV-2 proteins were compared to human proteins in search of high local homologous matching, only one immunogenic epitope in a SARS-CoV-2 had no homology to human proteins. Of all the parts of the epitopes that are homologous, this is, just try to bear with me, to human proteins are excluded from consideration due to risk of pathogenic priming. The remaining immunogenic parts of the epitopes may still immunogenic and remain as potential viable candidates for vaccine development. What they're going into here as mapping of the genes encoding human protein matches to pathways, points to targets that could explain the observed presentation of symptoms in COVID-19 disease. It strongly points to a large number of opportunities for expected disturbances in the immune system itself, targeting elements of MHC class 1 and class 2 antigen presentation. And it goes on to say, if I get to it here, Awfully important. Autopsies of Chinese citizens who've died from COVID-19 following SARS-CoV-19 infection show evidence of interstitial changes suggesting the development of pulmonary fibrosis. This suggests at least partly an autoimmunology basis of pathogenesis of COVID-19, a number of causal bases of autoimmunity from exposure to viral epitopes is well established. And it goes on and on, and it's just bear with it, as I say. And what they're finding, you see, what they're finding, when you dig into it, this article eventually gets to the 
to the <laughs> meet the problem, I'd say. They're describing the symptoms of uh, people in China uh, on post-mortem autopsy. The effects that the, this virus has had on their system and their immune system too. And it says the public health consequence from some viruses can include impaired immunity, um, encephalitis, long-term neurological disease such as demyelinating uh, disorders and relapsing events such as those seen in multiple sclerosis. Both genetic and environmental factors are thought to contribute both to the severity of viral infections and in determining who will develop autoimmune conditions. Now, autoimmune conditions are where you have problems after shots. You can come down with arthritis. Uh, you can come down with all kinds of problems. Um, allergy systems, stuff like that, that you never had before. Allergies of all kinds, rashes, hypersensitivization to different things and so on. Are effects of something attacking, it's affected your immune system until your immune system is then attacking your own body, like your joints uh, or your tendons or your spine or whatever it happens to go to. That's what happens. And, and, and this is understood in a lot of these big companies at the top, by the way, that give you vaccines. Uh, that it's always downplayed. They don't want the public to know, and even though they have their own statistics, of many folk will probably get it, and so on and so on. Anyway, this listen, this goes on to say mortality in the SARS-CoV-2 infection from COVID-19 is highly age-dependent, with older patients having the highest probability of death. The etiology of the age-specific mortality seen COVID-19 is largely unknown. SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-2 coronaviruses targets. The epithelial cells of the respiratory tract, right? Resulting in diffuse alveolar damage. That's why putting them on the ventilators often just blows them. The, the tiny little air sacs just bust. Boof. They're already swollen and inflamed and very fragile. Even when they're healthy, they're fragile. But other tissues are obviously all, uh, also potential targets for viral immunopathology, including mucosal cells of the intestine. A lot of uh, viral <laughs> viruses, even the, the synthetic viruses from vaccines often end up, uh, they've done this autop- autopsies on autistic children, for instance, and they often find, they, they can actually tell that they find the, the, the synthetic viruses or the made in labs, basically, for vaccines have made their home in, in intestines in some of these kids. There's official reports on them. This, this isn't made-up stuff, you know. So anyway, it says, um, so they're, they're talking about what they often do, including mucosal cells of the intestines, epithelial cells of the kidneys, brain cells, neurons, and cellular components of the immune system. In severe case of SARS, unlikely SARS-CoV-2, this viral targeting leads acutely to pneumonia, exposure to other uh, viral and um, ambient antigens are known causal factors in chronic autoimmune disorders of the airways, including asthma. So you know with that too. The role of autoimmunity in enhancing the severity of secondary exposures following prior infection or vaccination, listen to this, has been given little consideration. Among coronaviruses, the spike surface glycoprotein is known to play a role in neuroimmunopathology. However, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has numerous other proteins and polyproteins, each which may serve as an antigen source during infection, leading to autoimmunity. The immune system presents those proteins, like all human proteins, as normal. 
T-cells are trained to recognize a normal protein shape in the thymus. Uh, biomimicry between or among proteins from pathogens, infections or injection can, can conflate the signaling by creating a population of memory B cells, especially if the reaction switches from a, a Th1 towards a Th2 response. In SARS, a type of priming of the immune system was observed during animal studies of SARS, spike protein-based vaccines leading to increased morbidity and mortality in vaccinated animals. This is awfully important, this bit, right? I'll say it again. In SARS, a type of priming of the immune system was observed during animal studies of SARS spike protein-based vaccines leading to increased morbidity and mortality in vaccinated animals who were subsequently exposed to wild SARS virus. So they gave them the vaccination first, right? And then they wanted to see, by exposing them to, to the actual wild uh, SARS virus, if they develop antibodies, that's what they would do. But the problem, when they gave them the, they them, after the shot, when they, when they gave them the wild, actual wild uh, um, virus, after the vaccination, they had a massive autoimmune problem. That's, that's where you had the, the, the complete uh, immunopathology effect with the sonophilic infiltrates into the lungs, and you find bleeding in the lungs and all that. So it found that uh, Ferris, obviously previously vaccinated against the SARS-CoV, also developed a strong inflammatory response in liver tissue causing hepatitis, and both studies suspected a cellular immune response. What happens is it goes on to say you get an immune enhancement. It's not just immunity, but an enhancement. It's over enhancement, and you have the cytokine storm setting in. So the vaccine has primed your system, almost like like a hyper priming. So that when it hits the actual virus, it was intended to stop, or even some other types of viruses. By the way. It goes into beyond overdrive, and it's and it's your body's response that eventually comes back and, and kills you. That's in this actual article, uh, the, and and quite uh, and this is a study. This is massive studying from from laboratories, right? It's not someone just playing about in their in their kitchen uh, uh, with some jars and and tweezers and. Um, and a pair of scissors. This is uh, this is laboratory uh, testing for vaccine companies, and uh, it says that um, so they had, they had this uh, the, uh, cellular immune response. The types of unfortunate outcomes are sometimes referred to as immune enhancement. However, this nearly euphemistic phrase fails. This is it, it, it's great how they use terminology because folk would read it and say, "Oh, it's an immune enhancement." is to cover what they're really saying. It says, however, this nearly euphemistic phrase fails to convey the increased risk of illness and death <laughs> due to prior exposure to the SARS spike protein. For this reason, I refer to the concept as pathogen priming. It's really a pathogen priming. The peptides with pathogenic potential, therefore, are referred to as putative pathogenic priming peptides. That's what he puts down here on this one. And in the study, uh, present the likely human uh, Epitopic targets of bio- biomimicry-induced autoimmunological components of morbidity and mortality caused by SARS-CoV-2 infection. This is achieved via um, bioinformatic analysis of the homogeneous highly immunogenic SARS and so on. It goes on and on and on. But you can see when they're talking about the 
that your immune system, um, it might initially, after, after a shot, show that you've got some antibodies to the thing. However, once they hit the real thing, uh, the, the real virus in the wild, your system goes into overdrive, and rather than protect you, your immune system is going to end up killing you. That's always been known here. But it's good to get more and more verifications of it through different studies and so on. And it says, the fact that the pathogenic priming may be occurring involving autoimmunity against multiple proteins following COVID vaccination is consistent with other observations observed during autoimmunity, including the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines and cytokine storm. Similar to the SARS-CoV animal studies found that mice vaccinated against MERS-CoV Middle East Respiratory Syndrome development exaggerated pulmonary uh, immunopathology when challenged with the MERS virus following vaccination. So again, after vaccination, you expose them to the actual wild virus and they get a massive immunological um, response until it kills them. They reported that lung mononuclear infiltrates were observed in all groups after virus challenge and that increased infiltrates that contained osonophils and the sonophil promoting IL-5 and IL-13 cytokines were observed only in the vaccinated animals. And by the way, uh, that's the standard thing. You'll find osonophils in the, in the, in the lung, um, the washes they call it when they're when they, they, they find it. Osonophils are, are one of your blood cells, uh, a type that uh, will go to, to war anything. It shouldn't be there in their lung system, the, the, the respiratory system pretty well. And you'll find it crossing through the barrier, and uh, again, through the tissue, and you can actually find it on, on certain swab tests and so on. Uh, I had that when I, when I came down with a massive re- reaction against a whole multiple booster shots of vaccines back in the 90s. They gave me the, the complete onset of rheumatic fever, uh, high fever and the whole thing, and, uh, and went from my joints. Again, my immune system started immediately attacking my joints. And... Uh, uh, it was quite a, an awful time. I never really re- repaired from that at all. Um, and then you end up going, getting put on to, to combat it, to uh, heavy-duty uh, Corazone at the time, which opens you wide up to, to bacterial infection setting in, and I had naturally pneumonia from that too. And then, of course, uh, to combat the pains in the joints that give you um, certain... Um, non-inflammatory drugs as well and uh, anti-inflammatory drugs and they, they burn holes in your stomach so then you're on pills for the stomach and it just goes a complete circle all because of God, those, those booster shots at the time at this end. Oh, it, was, it was horrible I mean horrible I was crippled for a while and parts of my spine got destroyed as well there's no doubt about it but that came from booster shots. And, it, and again, that's what happens. They, they found a sonophils. I mean, the, the doctor got that. I, I want you to see the study and the blood test. And I, I saw right away, once I saw the sonophil reaction, they said, that's it, and that's what caused it. And, uh, and here you have articles like this, uh, studies pretty well verifying the same kind of uh, reactions and what you're fined on, you know, I wasn't dead to do the, to do an autopsy actually, but I was almost at that, that stage. And so there you go. And, um,
pathogenic priming be more or less severe in vaccine or infection-induced immune responses to some proteins that for other, than for others due to original antigenic sin, they call it. The immunologic reaction against self-antigens may be made less severe as fast-evolving viruses evolve away from the original vaccine type. Thus, the screening of immunogenic ep- uh, epitopes for pathogenic priming potential via homology may be augmented by studies of autoantibodies that cross-react with epitopes in- uh, included in vaccines. But uh, so there you go, isn't it? It's, it's uh, in the quest to try and get antibodies produced uh, because of the, the techniques that they're using, and even the animals that they're using for, and so on. You end up with other. They call it uh, debris getting in, even foreign matter getting in. It isn't just it just put the one for the vaccine. It's this other stuff off the animal kidney tissue and so on. That they put in there with other coronaviruses. They end up altering it. And then, you're, you know, when you when your body's faced with an actual wild coronavirus, your body goes in a hyper overdrive, all guns blazing, and literally. Uh, everything's rushed to those lungs of yours and um, you, you, you need treatment right away to save your life or you're, or you're pretty well doomed. Well, think about that and think about the articles I read previously about the, the, the 2017 as one example. A vaccine had to get recalled halfway through the, the, the season when they found out that folk were having the same kind of when, when actually it was opening them up to coronavirus infection, make them more prone to it, and that wasn't the first time either, because that happened a few years before that. And the Health Canada had to come out there and try to advise folk to stop taking it at that particular time. But this article here is read is from the Journal of Translational Autoimmunity, and it's from the Elsevier Come Journal, and uh, it's also part of I think. Um, it's the British health system there, and the, or the Lancet type, and they're involved with the Elsevier Journal. And this one here is also by James Lyons Wheeler, Institute of Pure and Applied Knowledge, USA. Anyway, there's there's some of the stuff. Is this you got to tell you? Uh, it's a sad thing. I don't think most doctors really ever admit to getting much. Training at all, it's almost like a byproduct at the very end of the training when they get maybe a few hours of vaccines, and that's it. You know, and they and they take everything on faith too from then on. It's just, what, I mean, why should they? Put, why would you think people would be lying to you? <laughs> you you take it for granted everything's real well tested. No, they're no different than anybody else until they start to see some of the patients come back with uh, obviously problems from what's happened, and then it's a matter of bread and butter for them versus causing a stink, you know. And I've got another article too on the, the bracelets, but I won't go into this one here. So it's, you're pretty well fed up with it all. There's that much on it, isn't there? Well, think about that when you're, you're going to have a, a pathological response to shots for a lot of people. And who's mainly got the, the shot. Well, who's, who has to take it? It's just a matter of investigation, and I think a, a lot of investigation should be done about that as to the health staff. I noticed one, another article, too, I'll put up, 
I got it last week, and I thought, my goodness, it's a picture of so many of the folk in the British health system in England, I should say, who died. And I noticed at the time most of them were were of uh, non-white ethnicities. They were Asian and um, African and and different people, um, India, a few white people, overweight, very overweight. But but of a hundred and maybe ten of them, most of them, the vast majority were different ethnic groups. And th- then, I, and I thought at the time, once again, these are folk working in the hospitals. But also, uh, the study said that, that the, these particular groups seemed to be more prone to it, and they, they generally ruled out uh, anything. They went into, well, it was maybe socioeconomic and all this. No, no, because the people who, were, who they were looking at, some of them were doctors, and they had much better incomes than a, a lot of the people uh, in, in, uh, outside the hospital staff. So it wasn't that. It wasn't uh, hygiene. It wasn't good food. It wasn't... It wasn't uh, lack of good food, I should say, or, or lack of good nourishment. So it uh, seemed to be more of an, uh, maybe the ethnic makeup, something genetic that was made more prone to it. And we know that too, that the ACE2 receptor sites are ever more profuse in some of these people. Uh, uh, so I think that's maybe got something to do with that one too. So there's, there's other factors involved too with... with uh, with, with, with that, and that's been looked into, it said in the article, it's a Daily Mail one, I think, that I should look at some, of the, some organizations or, or laboratories are looking into that to try and get some common denominators to find out why certain folk are getting hit harder than other people. And all this will maybe come out years later, you know, but as I say, if there's anything at all to do with, with problems, autoimmune problems from vaccinations, that, that'll be... They, they can't come out and tell that not after all of this <laughs> if that's what's going to do with it I don't know, we don't know yet as I say there's a lot of studies kind of pointing to it but I can't see anybody come out and admitting to that it's uh, but it's a thought isn't it eh? now what I've got to go and see here is this whole idea, and I mentioned it last week, that this magic you know, the, the, everything's magic that comes from Fouch and the rest of them and and you're your talismans to venture outside, and your masks there, and your hand sanitizer. You can wave it in front if you want to, just like you'd wave one of these things in the church, you know, with the smoke coming out of it. And, uh, because all this stuff really is voodoo for what's happening. Uh, the lockdown of healthy people is, is literally, as I say, guaranteed to make it spike come the fall, late fall. So therefore, they want that to spike, I'd say, in the fall. And then you get this whole idea with social distancing. And people are paranoid. Everybody who watches TV, I'm sure you've all noticed that um, uh, that they've said that women are freaking out. They'll start to yell off, get six feet away, get six feet away, you know. Five feet's just not, not, not far enough. It's going to be six feet away and all this. They, they, they really believe all this. Ter- that's the war of terror. The daily terror box is, is, is the whole thing. Orwell talked about it. But uh, here's where it came from, if you don't know. Who started this social distancing? You never got this idea of social distancing. But the idea came up about 2006. From where? From a a, a schoolgirl, 
This this is the, the usual rags to riches nonsense they always give you. Uh, a schoolgirl, eh? Laura M. Glass, her name was Glass. And this idea of, of social distancing was put out with, with the help of her dad, Robert J. Glass, who worked for the military-industrial complex. <laughs> and um, he worked at Sandia National Laboratories, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So targeting social, targeted social distancing to mitigate pandemic influenza can be designed through simulation of influenza spread within local community social contact networks. We demonstrate this design for a stylized community representative of a small town in the U.S. So it's a computer program. And the girl, they're all trying to do little make-believe things for, for school. But daddy helped, eh? daddy helped. The critical importance of children and teenagers in transmission of influenza is first identified and targeted. For influenza is infectious as 1957-1958 Asian flu infected, closing schools and keeping children and teenagers at home reduced the attack rate by 90%. For more infectious strains or transmissions, that is less focused, blah, 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 blah. So at the start of an influenza pandemic, effective vaccine and antiviral drugs may not be available to the general population. If the accompanying illness and death rates of the virus strain are high, how might a community response to protect itself? Closing roads, restricting travel, and community-level quarantine will enter discussion. However, within a community, influenza spreads from person to person through social net contact network. Therefore, understanding and strategically controlling network during a period of pandemic is critical. So go through the whole agenda that we're going through. This is made up, um, I think, in 2006. You never had this nonsense before. Once computers were taken in to start ruling their lives, it's like Ferguson with these, well, millions are going to die, you know, and all that stuff. Same nonsense. And the computer models they use um, at the PCC for, for, the, for the group for parliamentary, or for climate change. Uh, the United Nations, eh? IPCC, all computer modeling, which always give you scary, scary scenarios and scary outcomes. Eh? So he, here's what they came up with, and this is what they sold to the, the government. I was the Pentagon even approached them, supposedly, because they knew the daddy. Eh? And it, it really fitted the bill. If you wanted to bring the country down to a standstill, you'd implement this whole agenda. This is what we're living through. It's got nothing to do with what you think it's going to do. It was literally a computer program, right? And um, there's an easier article here that came out about it, uh, about how it it was even designed. The 2006 origins of the lockdown idea. Idea, right? And it says, Now begins the grand effort on display in thousands of articles, news broadcast daily, somehow to normalize the lockdown and all its destruction of the last two months. We didn't lock down almost the entire country in 1968, 69, or 57, or 49 to 52, or even during 1918. But in a terrifying few days in March 2020, it happened to all of us, causing an avalanche of social, cultural, economic destruction that will ring through the ages. There was nothing normal about it. We'll be trying to figure out what happened to us for decades hence. How did a temporary plan to preserve hospital capacity turn into two to three months of near-universal house arrest? 
that end up causing worker furloughs at 256 hospitals. That's leading them off. A stoppage of international travel. A 40% job loss amongst people earning less than 40000 a year. A devastating uh, every economy sector, mass confusion and demoralization. A complete ignoring of all fundamental rights and liberties, not to mention the mass confiscation of private property with forced closures of millions of businesses. So it's got a bizarre tale. It's what truly surprising is just how recent the theory behind lockdown and forced distancing actually is. So far as anyone can tell, the intellectual machinery that made this mess was invented 14 years ago. And not by epidemiologists, but by computer simulation modelers. It was adopted not by experienced doctors. They warned ferociously against it, but by politicians. And who's getting all the contracts out of it? By the politicians, the big corporations that manage your lockdown and track and trace you and all that kind of stuff, eh? Mm-hmm. Let's start with the phrase social distancing, which has mutated into forced human separation. The first I heard about it was in 2011 movie called Contagion. The first time it appeared in the New York Times was February the 12th, 2006. And the link to that is here too, by the way. And it says, if the avian flu goes pandemic, well, Tamiflu and vaccines are still in short supply. Experts say the only protection most Americans will have is social distancing, which is a new politically correct way of saying quarantine. But distancing also encompasses less drastic measures like wearing face masks, staying out of elevators, and the elbow bump. Such stratagems, experts say, will rewrite the way we interact, at least during the weeks when waves of influenza are washing over us. Maybe you don't remember the avian flu of 2006 didn't amount to much. It's true, it's true that, oh, that's going to kill us all too. It says, despite all the extreme warnings about its lethality, H5N1 didn't turn into much at all. It was hardly noticed, in fact. What it did do was send an existing president, George W. Bush, to the library to read about 1918 flu and its catastrophic results. He asked for some experts to, some, to submit some plans to him about what to do uh, if the real thing comes along. And then the New York Times tells the story from there with a link on it too. So 14 years ago, two federal government doctors, Richard Hatchett and Carter Metcher, met with colleagues at a a burger joint in suburban Washington for a final review proposal they knew would be treated like a pinata. Telling Americans to stay home from work and, and school the next time the country was hit by a deadly pandemic. When they presented their plan not long after it was met with scepticism and a degree of ridicule by senior officials who, like others in the U.S., had grown accustomed to relying on the pharmaceutical industry with its ever-growing array of new treatments to confront, confront evolving health challenges. Doctors Hatchett and Mitchell were, were proposing instead that Americans in some places might have to turn back to an approach of self-isolation first widely employed in the Middle Ages. And so this this is the story of how this this idea became the heart of the national playbook for responding to the pandemic. So you so you had met your Department of Veterans Affairs physician and Dr. Hatcher, who was an oncologist turned White House advisor, to overcome intense initial opposition. It brought their work together with that of a Defense Department team assigned to a similar task. Had some unexpected detours, including a deep dive into history and so on the Spanish flu. And she was kicked off by a high school research project pursued by the daughter of a scientist at the Sandia National Laboratories. (laughs) 
Yes, do you see how they can smell the collusion of all, you know? The con- and the money they could see would be ahead of The concept of social distance is now intimately familiar to almost everyone. Uh, but it uh, first made its way through the federal bureaucracy of 2006 and seven, and it was viewed as impractical, unnecessary, and politically, in- politically infeasible. So then in the course of the planning, neither legal nor economic experts were brought in to consult and advise. Instead, it felt, it felt to Metcher, formerly of Chicago, and an intensive care doctor with no previous experience in pandemics and an oncologist hatchet. But the girl, the high school daughter of, of, of 14, her name is Laura M. Glass, and she recently declined to be interviewed when the Albuquerque Journal did a deep dive history of this history, it says. Laura, with some guidance from her dad, <laughs> sure, some devised a computer simulation that showed how people, family members and co-workers, students, uh, and people in social situations interact. So they made up, up how many folk they meet in a day and yada 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 for the computer program and yada yada. And I guess through the daddy's friends and stuff, uh, they eventually got a visit from the Pentagon, who... I'm sure mulled over and thought this is a great way to shut down a country. So that's what I'm adding. This, I'm, I'm, this is my own ideas here, and what they could, make, and the money they could make off it, and all the rest of it. I'm pretty sure of that. How anyway? Anyway, it says the paper is called "Targeted Social Distancing Designs for Pandemic Influenza, 2006," and um, it says that we conclude with a chilling call for what amounts to total to, to totalitarian lockdown, which we're in right. All stated very matter-of-factly, implementing of social distance strategies is challenging. They they likely must be imposed for the duration of the local epidemic and possibly until a strain-specific vaccine is developed and distributed. So amazing that has become the law, isn't it, this idea? This idea from a schoolgirl, whose dad has worked for the military-industrial complex. (laughs) So so that's what Fauci said, too, from the beginning, eh? He says, well, you know, you've got lockdown until you get a vaccine. Right, right out of the playbook, eh? If compliance with the strategy is high over this period, an epidemic within a community can be averted. However, if neighborhood communities do not also use these interventions, infected neighborhoods will continue to introduce influenza and prolong local epidemic, albeit at a depressed level more easily accommodated by healthcare systems. So, in other words, it was a high school science experiment that eventually became a law of the land. And through a uh, circuitous route, propelled not by science but by politics, I would I would say, and folk in the know who probably saw big, 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 big bucks, especially when the, the Pentagon got involved in it and went to talk to them. So there you go. I mean, and by the way, I'll put another link up as well to the Britain who, who said, well, they can, they, they'll probably just bring it down to three feet apart now. It's just the same. There'll be no real noticeable difference. So that was all bogus to start with, folks. You can't have it being the law of the land. Oh my God, they'll die if you go under six feet. It's so contagious to, to well, three feet's okay, you know, no, no real difference there. So why not have it three feet at the beginning then, or two feet, or one foot, or just stand on top of each other's heads? What does it matter? Do you realize how bogus all this is, folks? You're starting to get the picture here, eh? <sighs> Quite amazing, eh? Now, George Soros is offering to uh, rectify the, the money problem. He's, he's awfully good at rectifying, or actually wrecking. The, the first part of rectifying is wreck, you know, is good at destroying countries with his scams as he plunders nations. That's how he got his cash and so on. 
uh, generally the nations they helped him out when he fled there, like Britain. And uh, and then he boasts about it too. Once he he he, he crashes the economy and that they borrow money to his friends or from from his friends who of course lent to Britain. <laughs> it's quite a scam, and he gets away with. It. But he's a very important guy, who's obviously way up the tree. And on the big world intelligence system that runs it all on behalf of the, the truly uh, the truly top globalists, but he says he says here that Europe should tap up an obscure bond used during the Napoleonic Wars to save itself from coronavirus depression. Well, we've, we've all got depression from the coronavirus, I think. So he's got the answer, and and because he's into hedge funds and all that, and he introduces this this bond that was issued after the Napoleon. Napoleonic Wars, actually during it too, to fund the armies against Napoleon. And we know the history of that and how the, how the Bank of England got uh, lost, put that way, and taken over. But he, he says, rather than, than we just issue a new type of bond, you see, uh, that uh, the government will have to pay out for people who buy the bonds, but the government never has to pay the actual um Amount owing, you see, just an interest on it forever. For, that's that forever. Isn't, isn't that kind of familiar? That perpetual debt idea, you know. And of course, it gives a very low interest rate, which of course will never ever be implemented or stuck to once it's in place. And and he and a few of his friends, I'm sure that they came up with a scam, will make fortunes forever, and their children and grandchildren, no doubt too. Because you, you, the, you never pay the, the amount borrowed back from the government doesn't it just it just uh, pays interest out on it you see and it says but that's forever you pay that interest in perpetuity well we kind of heard this before isn't it, it got echoes or something and um, so perpetual debt forever and ever and debt of course is slavery and those who who actually end up owning the bonds own the country but they already own the country anyway the the big guys who manage the con game of money and um, that's what he's suggesting that they all do you know he's an answer to it all and and of course you have to to jack up the taxes you see because see the taxpayer always pays for the vultures (laughs) to, to get rich and the tax, so that, that's an old, it's as old as, as, as ancient Sumer, pretty well, this idea. Uh, because uh, then, you, then they have to tax the, the taxpayers more, new taxes, to pay the interest on this, this owing over the bonds. And so, oh, what a scam, eh? Look, this is semi-new, who's kidding who here? But there you go, that's how the nonsense goes. I mean, the whole, the whole money system is a racket anyway. And... Uh, Another article, too, I mentioned already, was the government advisor, this is in the UK, uh, says easing to the two-meter rule, right? Um, so easing the, the six-feet-odd, you know, to one meter will have no significant impact on risk of spreading coronavirus. As the minister, I mean, the politicians say pubs with gardens could be first hospitality businesses to reopen in July. And Professor Robert Dingwall said it could allow four times as many people into a space. They're awfully good at counting, eh? I mean, th- this is why they're professors, you understand. Yeah? Uh, you can get four times as many folk into the same space, you see, by doing this. Isn't that? This guy's a genius. But there you go. So before it was lethal. Right? It's lethal if you, if you were... And, and it terrified mainly women, actually, by TV propaganda. 
and like repetitive terror, terror, terror every day for, for months now. And the women were freaking out. People were breaking the six feet rule, you know, by a few inches. Well, now if we find out, well, you don't, it, it was all kind of nonsense. You don't really need that anyway, even though it was nonsense dreamed up by Miss Glass and her daddy, who worked with a, a military contractor. The whole idea of the six feet idea, nonsense, absolute rubbish. But uh, so we can half it now, half it, we did no significant impact, you see. Uh, and that's how they work out the, the nonsense, eh? Before it's law, and, and folk could get batoned and their heads beaten in if they broke it and, and spoke up about it. But now it's okay to go half the distance now, you see. Oh, well, that's all right. Another new normal. It's great how the new normals, you see, because they're based on nothing except uh, computer models and, and big incomes for, for the, con, the con people who design them, these programs. <laughs> the computer says. There you go. And we'll have to jump to what, what ra- this. This is not how you how how you, how you govern people with these computers. You see, chronology has always been. They've always used science to get what they want. They take away rights away and freedoms and so on. Well, it's scientific, you know. Uh, that's that's the that's the modern time since the Enlightenment. It's science, but but really, it's not about it at all. Now they use the computer. It's even well, you can't argue with a computer. It's pure logic, is it really? It only you only feed into it. It only comes out what's fed into the thing, you know. So there you go. It's like a stacked deck in a Chinese restaurant where they've already pre-written all, all the little um, fortune cookie messages for you. It's all pre-written, you see. <laughs> this message says you, you, you will come back to this restaurant again because you love it and it brings you good luck. And the next message says, and if you don't come back to the restaurant, you'll have bad luck. It's, very, it's, 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 it's just another scam. Like that. That's what computers are all about. So I'll put these up tonight as well. So that's Mr. Soros, the man who wrecks nations. And as he wrecks them, he boasts, this, and there's nothing personal as he, as, he, as he crashes economies and profits from it. It's just business, he says. He actually said that eh? in one of his, his uh, little talks. And no one votes for this guy. The guy who literally funds massive NGO armies and anti-fund different groups and so on. No one votes for this guy. Don't you get the, the, the message that the real system is way above politics? Uh, it contains guys like Soros. It's a big club at the top, you know. Now, another one, too, I mentioned this is, um, and I've already put down uh, how the whole the origins of the lockdown idea came, for, again, with Miss Glass and her daddy. But uh, you, you got to, you've got to read it, what, what, what's running our lives right now. It's just astonishing. Because the next step, I was just thinking about this today. So here you are, computers and some, some kid's idea. And of course, the, the, that's got millions for this idea since the Pentagon came in. Because they could use an idea to crash economies across the planet. It's like a warfare thing, you understand. And again, the bank banks, they, they want to, to re, uh, uh, reevaluate the currency system and the techniques of currency. And even the value of currency, reset it, I like to call it. Because we were stagnant from the last crash in 2007 and 2008 when they reset it then. Well, and with, with, with negative interest rates and so on, you see. So they all wanted this thing. So they, so they grabbed on this six feet distances and all that kind of stuff uh, for, for, and, and put it into computer programs. So the military were behind it as well. And the military has nothing to do with protecting your country. It's like the CIA. It's, it's the same thing at the top. They have agendas you'll never fathom. And it's not to benefit you. You won't get given the tab, though, the bill for all. 
But I was thinking of that with the six foot nonsense. Now you can have it to, uh, you know, maybe three feet would be okay. A drunk Hindu priest in India, I think it's India, beheads man in Indian temple as a human sacrifice to goddess who came to him in a dream and said it would end the coronavirus. So Sansari uh, Oja decapitated, decapitated Saroj Kumar Pradhan, 52 years old, in Kutak on Wednesday. He had a long-standing feud with Pradhan and had been drinking on the night. The priest surrendered police the following day and the axe was seized. Uh, I was just thinking of that, you see, uh, that this is what they said would, would appease the goddess, you see, and the coronavirus would disappear, eh? And I don't know if he convinced the guy to, to allow his head to be taken off or not. He said he didn't like the man, but uh, who knows, eh? And he um, says that Oja was heavily drunk at the time and surrendered to police the same day after coming to his senses. So the goddess in his dream told me to sacrifice a human in order to bring an end to the pandemic. Well, I was waiting to see if it would work, eh? I, I'm sure there's a lot of people... Uh, uh, you look at the, what the World Health Organization and Fauci and the rest of it, and Ferguson, eh? Neil Ferguson. We're going to have millions just in, in the U.S. alone die here of this thing. Uh, and would oh my God, the world would drastically reduce the population, eh? And we'd stop our whole existence and have a whole new way of living. It was luckily it was all drafted up before the virus. Uh, the whole idea for a new world order. And and they just have to they just brush the, the dust off the plan, you know, and present it to us. But I was just thinking, since everything else fell flat and the, the numbers crashed into dust, and all our computer predictions were completely wrong, you know, and they crashed economies across the planet. I was just thinking, well, well, since they came out with this voodoo nonsense with the computer and all that, uh, all the false numbers and. And, and even even social distancing that was invented in 2006, as I've mentioned by that girl and their daddy, and heavily funded by them, I'm sure, to get contracts from the military. <laughs> uh, complete bogus nonsense, you understand. Viruses don't give a darn how far you are from somebody. If a breeze comes along or a door opens in a store or your own house, it's going to blow all around in circular motions all around the house, for goodness sake. Eh? Don't you understand that simple fact? But anyway, you know, facts don't matter with a big agenda. So anyway, I was thinking the World Health Organization, they gave you all the scary numbers and scary scenarios and total lockdown the whole planet and crashing economies. And that. Maybe they're watching this priest, Sunsari Oja, eh, to see if there's any luck with with bringing down the pandemic, it was time for the pandemic to roll over. Actually, you know, it usually has about three months that standard, and then it dies off. And then folk have got if they've been allowed to mingle, they'll have some kind of herd immunity. That's normal. That's a normal thing with them. But they've been waiting to see if it works, and they might start asking for sacrifices at the WHO. You never know. You just never know, eh? Because you you can't you can't poo poo other folks' beliefs, you know. You know, in this modern world, and I can see them all standing there behind Trump, you know, and you have Fauci there um, doing his voodoo stuff, and he'll have shares, of course, and all kinds of things that might just help. And then you have Dr. Burks behind them nodding the head, you know, nodding the head as they, they announce what they have to do to bring this pandemic to an end, right? I mean, you never know. 
Um, I mean, it's just a step from the computer models with drastic prognosis and outcomes vastly over-exaggerated. So, and that took a lot of faith to believe in that nonsense. So, so they can go, surely can take a step and go the next step and copy India, for goodness sake. Eh? What about it? Well, you never know. We're, we're just dumb peasants at the bottom, they tell us. Hmm? And, and here's the geniuses at the top, crashed the, the whole planet's economy. And now they're telling us, like Kissinger, too, with the world order and the whole thing. And... and um, and the United Nations with this world, New World Order announcements and the Rockefeller Center New World Order announcement. All, all this old plan just, dra- again, blow the dust off it presented to the public. And we're supposed to believe it all just happened spontaneously out of nothing. And a whole new way of living, a whole new different kind of economy, a whole new sustainability, folks. They've been prattling about it for years at the WEF and the Club of Rome. And bingo, they get what they want with under a different guise, using a different scare uh, t- uh, tactic, you see. But there you go, that's what they're doing in India, at least in one little instance of it. And India's really had it terribly hard, because they, they, they'd never had an abundant food supply to start with. They've got a huge population, and a, and a huge uh, lower class, working class people, who are often transient, and they move. To, to where the work is seasonally and so on, and they were all locked up in the area. They couldn't even go back home, and so, what, what a terrible disaster there. And uh, they've got a, a long ways to get out of it too. So it's, uh, it's really rather sad um, what's happening in, in different countries as they try. We haven't seen it all here yet too. If the ones at the top, the characters at the top have their way, will be in rationing before the end of the year. I mean, really strict rationing. They want this. This is what austerity is. This is their austerity program at the United Nations, which all your countries and your politicians signed on to years ago. That's what it is. You're living through an agenda, a script. And then to global capitalism, world government, and the coronavirus, that's the... Chusadovsky, Global Research, uh, repeating the same kind of stuff, really. And they mention the, the military-industrial complex and the councils of government. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. And the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, January 17th, 1961. And, of course, the World Health Organization has been raising itself up using a pretext as a justification to triggering a worldwide process of economic, social, and political restructuring. That's what the New World Order is about. That's what they mean. (laughs) Uh, So it's quite amazing to watch all happening. So I'll put these articles up tonight, too. And hopefully you people can... Remember where they come from and who, who present them to you. And at least some of the people should mention to repeat them in their own article and new, new shows and so on, where they got it. Because I'm doing a lot of work for nothing for other people who don't even give you the, the thank you here and there. But I do thank the people who support me over over these years. And uh, as I say, I, I don't have the, the wealthiest class <laughs> following me. At least that's how it seems. But I have people who, who help me out here and there. Because it costs a lot of money to do what I do, and I can't do anything else while I'm doing it, you understand? 
and uh, I knew when I started. It only came, only came out because I knew it was time to come forward with the knowledge and understanding of what was really happening and managed to, to change even the so-called um, patriot movement into a wider understanding uh, that this wasn't just the U.S. This was a whole global system, and your governments had all signed on annually to new agreements to, to create a new system for the whole planet. Gave all the data and all the rest of it, and the depopulation stuff, yada, yada, yada. So go to encouragingthroughmatrix.com, and as I say, you can buy the books and discs, or you can donate to me, straightforward. How to do it, cuttingthroughmatrix.com. List all my official sites there in case any of them go down. And hopefully I can keep ticking along for a little while longer because the big, the big characters at the top really mean war. This, this is war against the general population. You, you don't plan this for years on behalf of the rulers of the world as they've done uh, just to let it go because people want their rights back. They, they, they don't play that way. Uh, We're in for really tough times, believe you me, and you're going to see the heavy, heavy fist, and then the iron fist come out out from underneath the glove, the velvet glove, and that's what they want to do right now. They've worked for this for years to get us to this stage, and they're not going to back off now. And no matter how farcical the excuses are given, and infantile excuses are, it doesn't matter. An agenda must be accomplished. That's how they see it. That's how they see it. Now, I'm also going to put up, uh, really, the, I think it's the new Irish Sentinel. It's a PDF form, and it's got articles in it to do with, like, TV is a psychosocial weapon. And it's got a nice little picture there of the people will believe what the media tells them they believe. George Orwell said that there. Because into the physical way in which TV affects the, the brain. I used to do talks that years ago when I had the flicker rate, you know, so we used to have a flicker rate at one time. And we turn you into the alpha state, which is very, very hypnotic, you know. Very quickly, too, within 30 seconds of watching TV, you, you, you go into the, the alpha state. Well, you, you don't know it, but you, you go into it, all right. And uh, they go into the, the different states, uh, the beta and alpha and so on, theta and delta. But Alpha is the one for, for getting ideas across to the general public without them really being aware they've been indoctrinated. <laughs> and it's also why you really enjoy uh, being watching fantasy, because you're in the movie. And uh, like I say, in danger and horror movies, you, 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 you can't look away because you're, you're the person in the movie in a sense. And you must survive and know what's happening, so you can't look away. Uh, that's how it works. Without the alpha state, it's not so easy, you see. It's got some good articles in it, this 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 particular one, and uh, give a, a, a bit of reading for people. Uh, it's online here. It has the ID2020, the real game plan in it too. And um, I'm sure folk will enjoy it. So I'll put the link up for those who want to have a peruse for it. Through it. It's good to read stuff because when you get dependent on being told and, and even having the visual part too, uh, you, you don't realize you've been distracted even with visual. <laughs> uh, if you can hear and remember, it's much better. But reading is even better than that. And uh, I, I personally always, that's how I learned stuff at school too. I could actually see my mind's eye, the print in my mind's eye. Word for word, and uh, so you definitely remember it much, much better. 
also depopulation through forced vaccination, the zero carbon solution, it says here. As Bill Gates said, the world has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on the new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 to 15%. You really want this guy to help you, don't you? Mm, Yeah, sure. It's got different articles in it which are worthwhile looking through. Uh, One uh, is also with... uh, I'm in there somewhere too, I think so. It's of me. It's my site is. But I'll put it up anyway. It's the RA Sentinel. And it's issue one. PDF, a revised one. uh, And uh, a renewed one, I should say. With issue one. Because it's time now for get back into even print because your, your system is going to be taken away from you. I gave talks years ago of how in the Soviet Union folk uh, literally would type up things on, on secretive typewriters because they could find out even who had the typewriter by, by the typesetting whole thing. And they'd be very careful and, and, and hide them and pass them around. Just little articles that folk would print and pass around those who are interested in what was happening to get some resistance up against government policies and so on. And you could be put in prison forever or say off the gulags and and killed, tortured or whatever uh, by uh, biotopic systems, that's what they do, you know. And socialist systems especially. And all, all systems are fascist anyway. I don't care what, how they start off or pretend they are. They end up being fascist very quickly. But... Uh, yeah, they, they kill them, as I say, and, and um, if you don't go along with things. So, with the internet being so incredibly well monitored, all our names, we're all so dissected, no doubt about it. And you know, everything you think almost on the internet, uh, you're going to have to start getting alternative systems, because they won't just give up. Don't ever believe that. The, the, the people who set up the internet gave you Zuckerberg and all the rest of them, and Google, by the way, and Alphabet. Uh, it's a massive intelligence operation. That's what it is to to manage the thoughts and, and moods and, and and what everybody's doing, and eventually for arresting people. Who, uh, as time goes on, and because you're going into a more totalitarian system, that's what sustainability is all about. The sustainable agenda is a socialistic form of technocracy to run it more efficiently on behalf of those who own the planet or who've decided, like the Bill Gates, you know, these guys who really think they own the planet and they have the right to do with the animals, which is all of us, uh, as they wish. And so uh, it's a post-democratic system and you have to just accept that or fight it in one way or another. And um, the, the, the first thing they always do is, is, to, is to crush all dissent all, all, all speech, communication of the ideas, all the rest of it, that's standard stuff in turn, under tyranny. And that's what's happening now for those who haven't figured it out. It's, it is happening now. I don't care who you are. I don't care if, 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 I, if a person thinks they're from Mars with a cure for, for COVID. I, I, I don't mind them saying it. It doesn't bother me. So, and who who should care? But the fact is that they're banning all kinds of people from saying what, uh, things that must be said in a free society. You can't be free without speech being free. You can't be free, obviously. 
And so you're, you're going through this system now and the signs and symptoms of the system of tyranny. That's what you're looking at right now. And I hope you understand that. You've got to do something about it. And you all get your chances. You go, you go along with it and you, you get tighter and tighter chains as you go along with it. It's not going to loosen on you if you're going along with it. It's going to be tighter and tighter. And to get comply with the next rule and the next rule and the next rule. Or you, or you simply start to say no, as I say. You, you can't keep going into tyranny like this. Uh, the, the system they're bringing in, in is not living. It, it, it's a monitored prison existence of a thousand rules that you must obey because you're owned. You're, owned, you're a number and you're owned. And that is not living. That's not what we've come through centuries and centuries and centuries to, uh, of history to do, is to get to this stage where we're back into slavery again. Remember that, folks. And it's up to you, each, each and every one of you. So I'll put these links up tonight, remember, at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and go into the site, donate, and hopefully I'll be getting the books out shortly. They've been ordered because um, the printers have been closed and uh, I'll get it all done and hopefully the post is going to start running a bit better and we better start using this bit of freedom because, they, as I say, with the lack, with this lack of herd immunity, you only get it by getting exposed to it and as I say, most folk have had it and they've got antibodies already and they didn't even know it, right? So they've, they've done their best to, to hold back herd immunity, and which will guarantee a spike, which means they'll, they'll probably end up trying to close it in the spring. They want, see, the longer they can carry this on, the harder it is to break out of it, and the more folk will literally adapt to it. They understand this. The psychologists know it. The behaviorists know it. And, uh, but, the, but if, they can, if they can't hold us under it for, for this long, it'll, it'll just, we won't go along with it again, you see. They know that too. It's a make-or-break time for freedom. And we've got to demand that the studies are done into the causes of this thing and the causes of certain folk getting it worse than others and definitely, uh, quite simple, what, what, what did the folk in the old folks' homes get that the public outside didn't or had perhaps less off, put it that way too, before this particular thing hit? There's got to be a, there's, there's, there's definitely something to this, you know. Definitely, and the healthcare workers as well. What did they all have? What did the healthcare, apart from working together with with all the, what did the healthcare workers have in common with the folks and the old folks? What did they have in common? It's not difficult to find out, folks, and it should definitely be either looked into uh, under any scientific study. You got to look at everything without poo-pooing it. And even if you do poo-poo, you should always look into it and, and, and test out to see if it's right or wrong or whatever, if there's a, a connection there or not. Obviously, that's the only way you find out any truth about anything, by either ruling in or ruling out. It's got to be done. And as I say, that the horrific systems of disposing of people because they're old, disposing in these homes uh, to massive businesses that are out for incredible profits, Living parasitical businesses. You, I, I really do believe that the, the National Health Service in Britain it was a great system at one time. 
but they, they started selling out, you know, the government started selling off chunks of it to private corporations over the years, just like Canada did the same thing in Canada. British Columbia did it, and Ontario did it too, step by step, because the whole object was always to eventually private, completely privatize them all, folks, and have us all held to utter ransom and hype. It's an incredibly profitable area, isn't it? But we've got to get back to human life being, having some value, and stop uh, and get rid of all these bioethicists. Get rid of them. Kick them out altogether. That have no place to do with with human beings, and life and death. Not that no place at all. We've got to do our, our best to keep folk alive, as we used to always do, and to do our best for, for giving them the best kind of life they can with the healthcare you can possibly provide. The best healthcare. That's what life's about. Not but profit. You can't put profits on human life. No way. No especially the stinking, awful profits that they do from big business and corporations and big pharma. Look after yourselves and uh, don't panic completely. Eh? Uh, think for yourselves too. And try and get a break once in a while as well. You need a break. You can't live in a constant tension. But stand up for yourselves. Don't be afraid to stand up for yourselves. And give your express your opinions because the because they've, they're trying to turn those that fall into line through panic and fear against the rest, like a little civil war on the go. Eh? And you'll see that in the stores, I'm sure, when folks shout, "Don't don't stand there! You can't walk that way. You're wrong direction. Well, can't I reverse? No, you can't. No, I've got a reverse gear here. No, you can't do that. Smart guy, yeah, stuff like that." But they're turning people against other people. And the ones who watch TV are the most freaked out. And, uh, and everyone, everyone is actually seeing it in action. And as I say, they're, they're admitting now the whole six feet farce is nothing but a computerized farce. Because if you can suddenly half it by the, and the top says it's okay, uh, three feet's just as good. You know, there'll be no, no significant difference. Well, no significant difference means there is no difference. It's all baloney, folks. For myself, Alan Watt from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.